5. Success Ethics Consider two societies, both unequal and to the same degree. Of every $100 in national income, the richest 20% receive $62, while the poorest 20% get only $1.70. If you pool the entire income of the bottom half of the society, you would have only $12.50, far less than the amount taken in by the richest 1% alone, $20.20. Disparities of wealth are even greater. If you are troubled by stark inequalities of income and wealth, you might well consider these two societies unjust. But before deciding, you might ask for some further information. You might want to know, for example, how these unequal distributions arose. Meritocracy versus aristocracy. Imagine then that the first society is an aristocracy in which income and wealth are determined by the accident of birth and passed down from one generation to the next. Those born to noble families are wealthy and those born to peasant families are poor. The same will be true of their children and their children's children. And imagine that the second society is a meritocracy. Its inequalities in income and wealth are not the result of hereditary privilege, but the result of what people have earned through effort and talent. Learning this would likely lead you to prefer the second society to the first. An aristocracy is unjust because it consigns people to the class of their birth. It does not let them rise. A meritocracy, by contrast, enables people to improve their condition by exercising their talent and ingenuity. This is a powerful argument in its favor. To be sure, a meritocracy does not do away with inequality. Precisely because people differ in their talents and ambitions, some rise higher than others. But at least it can be said that these inequalities reflect people's merits rather than the circumstances of their birth. Those who worry about inequality might still press for further information. They will suspect that even in the meritocratic society, at least some of those at the top have benefited from a favorable starting point in life. Loving, supportive, and possibly affluent families, good schools with dedicated teachers, and so on. Before declaring the meritocratic society just, these skeptics will want to know that policies are in place to ensure that all children, regardless of family background, have the educational and cultural opportunities to reach their full potential. One way of thinking about what makes for a just society is to ask what kind of society you would choose if you did not know whether you would grow up in a rich family or a poor one. 
by this standard, most people would agree that a meritocracy with truly equal opportunity is more just than an aristocracy. But for the moment, put the question of justice aside and consider another feature of the two unequal societies we have imagined. Suppose you knew in advance whether you would land on top or on the bottom. Which of these two societies would you rather live in if you were rich? And which would you prefer if you were poor? Remember, both societies are highly unequal. If you land in the top 1%, your average income will be, let's imagine, $1.3 million per year. If you land in the bottom 20%, it will be only $5,400 per year. That is quite a difference. You might conclude that since the gap between rich and poor is equally stark in both societies, knowing which position you will occupy does not help you decide which society to prefer. But income and wealth would not be your only consideration. If you were rich, you might prefer the society that enabled you to bequeath your wealth and privilege to your children. This would argue for the aristocratic society. If you were poor, you might prefer the society that enabled you or your children a chance to rise. This would argue for the meritocratic society. Further reflection, however, suggests a countervailing consideration in each case. People care not only about how much money they have, but also about what their wealth or poverty signifies for their social standing and self-esteem. If you were born into the upper reaches of an aristocracy, you would be aware that your privilege was your good fortune, not your own doing. Whereas if you ascended through effort and talent to the apex of a meritocracy, you could take pride in the fact that your success was earned rather than inherited. Unlike aristocratic privilege, meritocratic success brings a sense of achievement for having earned one's place. From this point of view, it is better to be rich in a meritocracy than in an aristocracy. For similar reasons, being poor in a meritocracy is demoralizing. If in a feudal society you were born into serfdom, your life would be hard, but you would not be burdened by the thought that you were responsible for your subordinate position, nor would you labor under the belief that the landlord for whom you toiled had achieved his position by being more capable and resourceful than you. You would know that he was not more deserving than you, only luckier. If, by contrast, you found yourself on the bottom rung of a meritocratic society, it would be difficult to resist the thought that your disadvantage was at least partly your own doing. 
a reflection of your failure to display sufficient talent and ambition to get ahead. A society that enables people to rise and that celebrates rising pronounces a harsh verdict on those who fail to do so. Meritocracy's dark side. The term meritocracy was invented under the shadow of this worry. Michael Young was a British sociologist affiliated with the Labour Party. In 1958, he wrote a book called The Rise of the Meritocracy. For Young, meritocracy described a dystopia, not an ideal. He wrote at a time when the British class system was breaking down, giving way to a system of educational and professional advancement based on merit. This was a good thing because it enabled gifted children of the working class to develop their talents and escape a life consigned to manual labor. But Young also glimpsed the dark side of meritocracy. Writing as if he were a historian, looking back from the year 2033, he described with uncanny clarity the moral logic of the meritocratic society that was beginning to unfold in the post-war Britain of his day. Without defending the class-based order that was passing, Young suggested that its moral arbitrariness and manifest unfairness at least had this desirable effect. It tempered the self-regard of the upper class and prevented the working class from viewing its subordinate status as a personal failure. Those who were catapulted to the top by their parents' riches and influence could not say to themselves with complete conviction, I am the best man for the job, because they knew that they had not won their place in open competition, and if they were honest, had to recognize that a dozen of their subordinates would have been as good or perhaps better. Young continued, the upper class man had to be insensitive indeed not to have noticed at some time in his life that a private in his regiment, a butler or charlady in his home, a driver of taxi or bus, or the humble workman with lined face and sharp eyes in the railway carriage or country pub, not to have noticed that amongst such people was intelligence, wit, and wisdom at least equal to his own. Even if some upper-class men deceived themselves into believing that they deserved their place at the top, their subordinates were under no such illusion. They knew that many bosses were there not so much because of what they knew, as who they knew and who their parents were. Knowing the system was rigged, empowered the working class to challenge it politically. This was the point of having a labor party. Equally important, the arbitrariness of the class system spared workers from judging themselves 
by the inferior status society had assigned them. Young writes, The worker said to himself, Here I am, a workman. Why am I a workman? Am I fit for nothing else? Of course not. Had I had a proper chance, I would have shown the world. A doctor, a brewer, a minister, I could have done anything. I never had the chance. And so I am a worker. But don't think that at bottom I am any worse than anyone else. Young suggests that being clear-eyed about the moral arbitrariness of one's rank has a certain advantage. It prevents both the winners and the losers from believing they deserve their lot in life. This does not vindicate the class system, but it does shed light on a paradoxical feature of a meritocratic order. Allocating jobs and opportunities according to merit does not reduce inequality. It reconfigures inequality to align with ability. But this reconfiguration creates a presumption that people get what they deserve, and this presumption deepens the gap between rich and poor. Here's how Young puts it. Now that people are classified by ability, the gap between the classes has inevitably become wider. The upper classes are no longer weakened by self-doubt and self-criticism. Today, the eminent know that success is just reward for their own capacity, for their own efforts, and for their own undeniable achievement. They deserve to belong to a superior class. They know, too, that not only are they of higher caliber to start with, but that a first-class education has been built upon their native gifts. Not only did Young anticipate the meritocratic hubris of elites, he glimpsed their affinity for technocratic expertise, their tendency to look down on those who lacked their lustrous credentials and the corrosive effect of these attitudes on public discourse. The rising elites come as close as anyone to understanding the full and ever-growing complexity of our technical civilization, Young wrote. They are trained in science, and it is scientists who have inherited the earth. Their superior intellect and education give them little reason or occasion to engage in serious discussion with those who lack a college degree. How can they carry on a two-sided conversation with the lower classes, Young wrote, when they, the elites, speak another, richer, and more exact language? Today, the elite know that their social inferiors are inferiors in other ways as well. That is, in the two vital qualities of intelligence and education, which are given pride of place in the more consistent value system of the 21st century. One of our characteristic modern problems, Young observed, and remember he was observing as if living in 2033, is that some members of the meritocracy 
have become so impressed with their own importance as to lose sympathy with the people whom they govern. He added sardonically that some meritocrats were so tactless that even people of low caliber have been quite unnecessarily offended. Hillary Clinton's statement during the 2016 campaign that half of Donald Trump's supporters were a basket of deplorables comes to mind. Resentment against elites was compounded by the self-doubt that a meritocracy inflicts on those who fail to rise. Here's Michael Young. Today, all persons, however humble, know that they have had every chance. Are they not bound to recognize that they have an inferior status, not as in the past because they were denied opportunity, but because they are inferior? For the first time in human history, the inferior man has no ready buttress for his self-regard. Young anticipated that this toxic brew of hubris and resentment would fuel a political backlash. He concluded his dystopian tale by predicting that in 2034, the less educated classes would rise up in a populist revolt against the meritocratic elites. In 2016, as Britain voted for Brexit and America for Trump, that revolt arrived 18 years ahead of schedule. Meritocracy reconsidered. The two societies I described above are not purely hypothetical. The income inequalities that beset them are the ones that prevail in the United States today. For the most part, these inequalities are defended when they are defended at all, on something like meritocratic grounds. No one argues that the rich should be rich because they were born to wealthy parents. Critics of inequality may complain that those who would abolish inheritance taxes, say, are implicitly endorsing hereditary privilege. But no one defends hereditary privilege outright or disputes the principle that careers should be open to talents. Most of our debates about access to jobs, education, and public office proceed from the premise of equal opportunity. Our disagreements are less about the principle itself than about what it requires. For example, critics of affirmative action in hiring and college admissions argue that such policies are inconsistent with equality of opportunity because they judge applicants on factors other than merit. Defenders of affirmative action reply that such policies are necessary to make equality of opportunity a reality for members of groups that have suffered discrimination or disadvantage. At the level of principle, at least, and political rhetoric, Meritocracy has won the day. In democracies throughout the world, politicians of the center-left and center-right claim that their policies are the ones that will enable all citizens 
whatever their race or ethnicity, gender or class, to compete on equal terms and to rise as far as their efforts and talents will take them. When people complain about meritocracy, the complaint is usually not about the ideal, but about our failure to live up to it. The wealthy and powerful have rigged the system to perpetuate their privilege. The professional classes have figured out how to pass their advantages on to their children, converting the meritocracy into a hereditary aristocracy. Colleges that claim to select students on merit give an edge to the sons and daughters of the wealthy and the well-connected. According to this complaint, meritocracy is a myth, a distant promise yet to be redeemed. This complaint is certainly valid. But what if the problem runs deeper? What if the real problem with meritocracy is not that we have failed to achieve it, but that the ideal is flawed? What if the rhetoric of rising no longer inspires, not simply because social mobility has stalled, but more fundamentally, because helping people scramble up the ladder of success in a competitive meritocracy is a hollow political project that reflects an impoverished conception of citizenship and freedom. To explore this larger question, we need to examine two objections to meritocracy as a moral and political project. One is about justice. The other is about attitudes toward success and failure. The first objection doubts that even a fully realized meritocracy in which jobs and pay perfectly reflected people's efforts and talents would be a just society. The second objection worries that even if a meritocracy were fair, it would not be a good society. It would generate hubris and anxiety among the winners and humiliation and resentment among the losers, attitudes at odds with human flourishing and corrosive of the common good. Philosophical critiques of meritocracy focus mainly on the first objection. For reasons we will explore, most contemporary philosophers reject the notion that society should allocate jobs and pay based on what people deserve. This puts philosophers at odds with the moral intuitions that inform common opinion. And it is worth trying to figure out who is right, the philosophers or the public. Although the first objection about justice is the more familiar one in philosophical circles, the second objection about hubris and humiliation may be more consequential for understanding our current political condition. The populist protest against meritocratic elites is not only about fairness, but also about social esteem. To understand this protest is to identify and assess the grievances and resentments that animate it. Are they legitimate or misdirected? Insofar as they are legitimate, what might be done to address them?
Would a perfect meritocracy be just? Imagine that one day we managed to remove all unfair obstacles to success so that everyone, including those from humble backgrounds, could compete with the children of the privileged on a level playing field. Imagine that we achieved, in fact, what we proclaim in principle, that all citizens should have an equal chance to rise as far as their talents and hard work can take them. Of course, such a society would be difficult to achieve. Overcoming discrimination would not be enough. The institution of the family complicates the project of giving everyone an equal chance. It is not easy to offset the advantages that affluent parents confer on their children. I am not thinking mainly of inherited wealth. A robust estate tax could deal with that. I am thinking of the everyday ways that conscientious, well-to-do parents help their kids. Even the best, most inclusive educational system would be hard-pressed to equip students from poor backgrounds to compete on equal terms with children from families that bestow copious amounts of attention, resources, and connections. But suppose this could be done. Suppose we could fulfill the promise of giving every child an equal chance to compete for success in school, in the workplace, and in life. Would this make for a just society? It is tempting to say, yes, of course, isn't this what the American dream is all about? Creating an open, mobile society in which the child of a farm worker or a penniless immigrant can rise to become a CEO. And while this dream holds a special allure for Americans, it also resonates in democratic societies throughout the world. A perfectly mobile society is an inspiring ideal for two reasons. First, it expresses a certain idea of freedom. Our fate should not be fixed by the circumstances of our birth, but should be ours to decide. Second, it gestures to the hope that what we achieve reflects what we deserve. If we are free to rise based on our own choices and talents, it seems fair to say that those who succeed deserve their success. Despite its powerful appeal, however, there is reason to doubt that even a perfectly realized meritocracy would be a just society. To begin, it is important to notice that the meritocratic ideal is about mobility, not equality. It does not say there is anything wrong with yawning gaps between rich and poor. It only insists that the children of the rich and the children of the poor should be able, over time, to swap places based on their merits, to rise or fall as a result of their talent and effort. No one should be stuck at the bottom or ensconced at the top. 
due to prejudice or privilege. What matters for a meritocracy is that everyone has an equal chance to climb the ladder of success. It has nothing to say about how far apart the rungs on the ladder should be. The meritocratic ideal is not a remedy for inequality. It is a justification of inequality. This is not in itself an argument against it, but it raises the question, is the inequality that results from meritocratic competition justified? Defenders of meritocracy say yes, provided everyone competes on a level playing field, the outcome is just. Even a fair competition has winners and losers. What matters is that everyone starts the race at the same starting point, having had equal access to training, coaching, nutrition, and so on. If so, the winner of the race deserves the prize. There is no injustice in the fact that some run faster than others. Do we deserve our talents? Whether this argument is convincing depends on the moral status of talents. Recall the rhetoric of rising that figures so prominently in public discourse these days. However humble our origins, the politicians proclaim we should all be able to rise as far as our talent and hard work will take us. But why exactly that far? Why assume that our talents should determine our destiny? and that we merit or deserve the rewards that flow from them. There are two reasons to question this assumption. First, my having this or that talent is not my doing, but a matter of good luck. And I do not merit or deserve the benefits or burdens that derive from luck. Meritocrats acknowledge that I do not deserve the benefits that arise from being born into a wealthy family. So why should other forms of luck, such as having a particular talent, be any different? If I won a million dollars in the state lottery, I would be delighted at my good fortune. But it would be folly to claim I had earned the windfall or that my winning had anything to do with my merit Similarly, if I bought a lottery ticket and failed to win, I might be disappointed, but I could not complain that I had been denied something I deserved. Second, that I live in a society that prizes the talents I happen to have is also not something for which I can claim credit. This too is a matter of good fortune. LeBron James makes tens of millions of dollars playing basketball, a hugely popular game. Beyond being blessed with prodigious athletic gifts, LeBron is lucky to live in a society that values and rewards them. It is not his doing that he lives today when people love the game at which he excels rather than in Renaissance Florence when fresco painters, not basketball players, were in high demand. 
The same can be said of those who excel in pursuits our society values less highly. The world champion arm wrestler may be as good at arm wrestling as LeBron is at basketball. It is not his fault that except for a few pub patrons, no one is willing to pay to watch him pin an opponent's arm to the table. Much of the appeal of the meritocratic faith consists in the idea that our success is our own doing, at least under the right conditions. Insofar as the economy is the field of fair competition, untainted by privilege or prejudice, we are responsible for our fate. We succeed or fail based on our own merits. We get what we deserve. This is a liberating picture, for it suggests that we can be self-made human agents, the authors of our fate, the masters of our destiny. It is also morally satisfying because it suggests the economy can answer to the ancient notion of justice as giving people their due. But the recognition that our talents are not our own doing complicates this picture of self-making. It puts in doubt the meritocratic faith that overcoming prejudice and privilege is sufficient to bring about a just society. If our talents are gifts for which we are indebted, whether to the genetic lottery or to God, then it is a mistake and a conceit to assume we deserve the benefits that flow from them. Does effort make us worthy? Defenders of meritocracy reply by invoking effort and hard work. They argue that those who rise by dint of hard work are responsible for the success their efforts bring and worthy of praise for their industriousness. This is true up to a point. Effort matters, and no one, however gifted, succeeds without working to cultivate his or her talents. Even the most gifted musician must devote long hours of practice to become good enough to play at Carnegie Hall. Even the most gifted athlete must spend strenuous years of training to make the Olympic team. Notwithstanding the importance of effort, however, success rarely comes from hard work alone. What sets Olympic medal winners and NBA stars apart from lesser athletes is not only their strenuous training regimes. Many basketball players practice as hard as LeBron, but few can match his exploits on the court. I could train day and night but I will never swim faster than Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, the gold medal sprinter considered the fastest runner in the world, acknowledged that his training partner, Johan Blake, also a gifted sprinter, works harder than he does. Effort isn't everything. The defenders of meritocracy know this, of course. They do not claim that the hardest working athlete deserves the gold medal or that the most industrious scientist deserves the Nobel Prize or that the worker who expends the most effort 
deserves the highest pay regardless of results. They know that success is an amalgam of talent and effort that is not easy to disentangle. Success breeds success, and those who lack the talents society rewards may find it hard to summon the motivation to strive. But the meritocratic argument is not mainly a sociological claim about the efficacy of effort. It is above all a moral claim about human agency and freedom. The meritocratic emphasis on effort and hard work seeks to vindicate the idea that under the right conditions, we are responsible for our success and thus capable of freedom. It also seeks to vindicate the faith that if the competition is truly fair, success will align with virtue. Those who work hard and play by the rules will earn the rewards they deserve. We want to believe that success in sports and in life is something we earn, not something we inherit. Natural gifts and the advantages they bring embarrass the meritocratic faith. They cast doubt on the conviction that praise and rewards flow from effort alone. In the face of this embarrassment, we inflate the moral significance of effort and striving. This distortion can be seen, for example, in television coverage of the Olympics, which focuses less on the feats the athletes perform than on heart-rending stories of the hardships they have overcome, the obstacles they have surmounted, and the struggles they have waged to triumph over injury or a difficult childhood or political turmoil in their native land. It can be seen in the overwhelming majority of Americans, 77%, who despite the difficulty of rising, believe that most people can succeed if they are willing to work hard. I see a similarly exaggerated emphasis on striving in my Harvard students, who, despite their impressive talents and often favorable life circumstances, invariably attribute their admission to effort and hard work. If the meritocratic ideal is flawed because it ignores the moral arbitrariness of talent and inflates the moral significance of effort, it remains to ask what alternative conceptions of justice are available and what notions of freedom and desert they offer instead. Two alternatives to meritocracy. Over the past half century, two competing accounts of a just society have shaped political argument in most democratic societies. One might be called free market liberalism, the other welfare state liberalism or egalitarian liberalism. These two public philosophies stand in a complex relation to meritocracy. Both offer compelling arguments against the meritocratic idea that a just society distributes income and wealth 
based on what people deserve. In practice, however, each generates attitudes toward success that are difficult to distinguish from meritocratic ones. Neither offers an account of the common good sufficiently robust to counter the hubris and humiliation to which meritocracies are prone. Despite rejecting the notion that the winners in a competitive market society morally deserve their winnings, these public philosophies offer no antidote to the tyranny of merit. It is instructive nonetheless to see why, despite their disagreements, they both reject merit as the basis of justice. Free Market Liberalism Perhaps the most influential case for free market liberalism in the 20th century was advanced by Friedrich A. Hayek, an Austrian-born economist philosopher. A source of inspiration for Margaret Thatcher and other proponents of laissez-faire capitalism, Hayek opposed government efforts to reduce economic inequality, argued against progressive taxation, and viewed the welfare state as antithetical to freedom. In his book, The Constitution of Liberty, 1960, Hayek argues that the only equality compatible with freedom is the purely formal equality of all citizens before the law. Careers should be open to everyone, but the state should not try to create a level playing field by providing equal or compensatory educational opportunities, a project he viewed as unrealistic and ultimately coercive. Unless the family were abolished, Children would inevitably grow up in families that varied in the advantages they afforded, and any attempt to give all children an equal prospect for success would involve intolerable state coercion. Hayek rejects the notion that all must be assured an equal start and the same prospect for success. Such a principle would require the state, he thinks, to control all conditions relevant to a particular individual's prospects, a far-reaching project that Hayek considers the opposite of freedom. Given his opposition to the redistribution of income, one might expect Hayek to insist that the free market gives people the economic rewards they deserve. But he does not. In fact, he argues that market outcomes have nothing to do with rewarding merit. They simply reflect the value consumers place on the goods and services sellers have to offer. Hayek draws a distinction between merit and value. Merit involves a moral judgment about what people deserve, whereas value is simply a measure of what consumers are willing to pay for this or that good. It is a mistake, Hayek argues, to over-moralize economic rewards by assuming that they reflect the merit of those who receive them. One of the reasons Hayek wants to deflate 
this moralizing notion is to disarm a familiar objection to the inequalities of income and wealth produced by unfettered markets. The most compelling objection to inequality, he suggests, arises from the concern that the differences in reward do not correspond to any recognizable differences in the merits of those who receive them. Hayek's reply to this objection is revealing. Rather than try to show that those who earn handsome rewards in the market morally deserve them, he rejects the idea that economic rewards reflect people's merits or moral desert. This is the force of his distinction between merit and value. In a free society, my income and wealth will reflect the value of the goods and services I have to offer. But this value is determined by contingencies of supply and demand. It has nothing to do with my merit or virtue or the moral importance of the contribution I make. To illustrate Hayek's point, consider an example. Some people argue that hedge fund managers do not deserve to make vastly more money than school teachers. Managing money is far less admirable and important than teaching and inspiring young people. A defender of free markets might reply that hedge fund managers are responsible for investing the hard-earned pensions of teachers and firefighters and college endowments. And so the moral importance of their work makes them worthy of the vast sums they earn. But Hayek does not offer this kind of reply. His argument is more radical. It rejects the very idea that the money people make should reflect what they deserve. Hayek supports this argument by observing that my having the talents society happens to prize is not my doing, but morally contingent, a matter of good luck. Here's how he puts it. The inborn, as well as the acquired gifts of a person, clearly have a value to his fellows, which does not depend on any credit due to him for possessing them. There is little a man can do to alter the fact that his special talents are very common or exceedingly rare. A good mind or a fine voice, a beautiful face or a skilled hand and a ready wit or an attractive personality are in large measure as independent of a person's efforts as the opportunities or the experiences he has had. In all these instances, the value which a person's capacities or services have for us and for which he is compensated has little relation to anything that we can call moral merit or deserts. For Hayek, denying that economic rewards are a matter of merit is a way of fending off demands for redistribution by those who believe that hedge fund managers do not deserve to make more than teachers. Hayek is able to reply that even if we consider 
the vocation of teaching to be more admirable than managing money. Wages and salaries are not awards for good character or worthy achievement, but simply payments that reflect the economic value of the goods and services market participants have to offer. Unlike Hayek, defenders of welfare state liberalism favor taxing the rich to help the poor. Surprisingly, however, they share Hayek's view that the distribution of income and wealth should not be based on what people merit or deserve. Welfare State Liberalism Welfare State Liberalism, or Egalitarian Liberalism, finds its fullest philosophical expression in the work of John Rawls, the noted 20th century American political philosopher. In his classic work, A Theory of Justice, 1971, Rawls argues that even a system of fair equality of opportunity, one that fully compensated for the effects of class differences, would not make for a just society. The reason? If people competed on a truly level playing field, the winners would be those endowed with the greatest talent. But differences of talent are as morally arbitrary as differences of class. Even if it works to perfection in eliminating the influence of social contingencies, Rawls argues, a fair meritocracy still permits the distribution of wealth and income to be determined by the natural distribution of abilities and talents. Income inequalities due to natural talents are no more just than inequalities that arise from class differences. From a moral standpoint, the two seem equally arbitrary. So even a society that achieved true equality of opportunity would not necessarily be a just society. It would also have to contend with the inequalities that arise due to differences in people's native abilities. How to contend with them? Some defenders of meritocracy worry that the only alternative to equality of opportunity is equality of result, a kind of leveling equality that would handicap the gifted to prevent them from gaining a competitive edge. In a short story called Harrison Bergeron, the author Kurt Vonnegut Jr. imagines a dystopian future in which those with superior intelligence, physical strength, and good looks are required to wear elaborate encumbrances and disguises to offset their natural advantages. But Rawls shows that this is not the only way to compensate for unequal talents. No one deserves his greater natural capacity nor merits a more favorable starting place in society, Rawls writes. But it does not follow that one should eliminate these distinctions. There is another way to deal with them. Rather than handicap the talented, Rawls would have the winners share their winnings with those less fortunate than themselves. Don't make the best 
runners wear lead shoes, let them run at full speed, but acknowledge in advance that the winnings do not belong to them alone. Encourage the gifted to cultivate and exercise their talents, but with the understanding that the rewards those talents reap in the market should be shared with the community as a whole. Rawls calls this way of dealing with unequal talents the difference principle. It departs from meritocracy not by preventing the gifted from exercising their talents, but by denying that they merit or deserve the rewards those talents command in a market society. The difference principle represents, Rawls writes, an agreement to regard the distribution of natural talents as a common asset and to share in the benefits of this distribution whatever it turns out to be. Those who have been favored by nature, whoever they are, may gain from their good fortune only on terms that improve the situation of those who have lost out. Society should be arranged so that these contingencies work for the good of the least fortunate. The meritocrat might reply that even if our natural talents are a matter of good luck, our effort is up to us. We therefore deserve what we earn by dint of effort and hard work. Rawls disagrees. Even the willingness to make an effort, to try, and so to be deserving in the ordinary sense, is itself dependent upon happy family and social circumstances. Even effort cannot save the idea that market rewards should reflect moral desert. Rawls puts it this way, the assertion that a man deserves the superior character that enables him to make the effort to cultivate his abilities is equally problematic. For his character depends in large part upon fortunate family and social circumstances for which he can claim no credit. The notion of desert seems not to apply to these cases. Like Hayek, Rawls emphasizes the moral arbitrariness of talent and rejects the idea that market outcomes reflect merit or desert. But for Rawls, this argues for redistributive taxation, not against it. To those who would deny the state the right to tax a portion of their hard-earned income, claiming they deserve it, Rawls replies that the amount of money we make depends on factors that are arbitrary from a moral point of view. It is not my doing that the market prizes the talents I have or that I possess those talents in the first place. So I cannot rightly complain if the tax laws require me to turn over a portion of my income to pay for schools or roads or help for the poor. It might be argued that even if I do not morally deserve the benefits the market bestows on my talents, it is a further question how these benefits should be distributed. Should society distribute them to the community as a whole, 
or to the least fortunate members of society? Or, as Hayek thinks, simply let them lie where they fall? Rawls's argument that market earnings reflect factors arbitrary from a moral point of view is a powerful negative argument. It undermines the meritocratic claim that the rich deserve the money they make. But it does not establish that the community has a legitimate moral claim to this money or some portion of it. This would depend on showing that we are indebted in various ways to the community that makes our success possible and therefore obligated to contribute to its common good. Politically as well as philosophically, welfare state liberals are better at articulating the negative argument against the individual's sole claim to her success than the affirmative argument for the individual's debt to the community. Recall Barack Obama's attempt to evoke the mutual dependence and obligation of citizens during his 2012 re-election campaign. If you've been successful, he said, you didn't get there on your own. You didn't get there on your own. I'm always struck by people who think, well, it must be because I was just so smart. There are a lot of smart people out there. It must be because I worked harder than everybody else. Let me tell you something. There are a whole bunch of hardworking people out there. If you were successful, someone along the line gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we have that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you've got a business, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. Republicans seized on the last two sentences to portray Obama as an apostle of big government who was hostile to entrepreneurs. Of course, he did not mean that my business or yours was actually built by somebody else. He was trying to say that the successful are not solely responsible for their success, but indebted to the community that makes it possible, not only by building roads and bridges, but also by cultivating our talents and valuing our contributions. You're not on your own. We're in this together, he added a few sentences later. More than a slip of the tongue, Obama's awkward attempt to describe the moral debt the successful owe their fellow citizens reflects a weakness in the philosophy of welfare state liberalism, which fails to provide a sense of community adequate to the solidarity it requires. This may account for the faltering legitimacy of the welfare state in recent decades, not only in the United States, but also in Europe, where public services and safety nets have traditionally been more generous. It may also account for the inability of liberal democracies to resist the rampant inequality of recent decades and the rising tide of meritocratic sentiment in political rhetoric and public attitudes 
that has rationalized it. Rejecting Merit Both Hayek and Rawls reject merit, or desert, as the basis of justice. For Hayek, denying that economic rewards are a matter of merit is a way of resisting demands for redistribution. For Rawls, the renunciation of merit and desert serves the opposite political position. It is a way of countering objections to redistribution by wealthy people who claim, for example, that they deserve the money they have earned and that it is therefore wrong to tax a portion of those earnings for redistributive purposes. Rawls can reply that making a lot of money is not a measure of a person's merit or virtue. It simply reflects the happy coincidence of the skills a person has to offer with the abilities the market demands. Once just tax laws are in place, people are entitled to keep whatever portion of their earnings the tax code specifies, but they cannot rightly claim that the tax laws should be written in the first place to honor or reward their merits and achievements. Although Rawls and Hayek differ politically, their rejection of merit as the basis of justice highlights two philosophical commitments they share. One is about the difficulty of coming to agreement in pluralist societies about which virtues and qualities of character are worthy of reward. The other is about freedom. Reward according to merit must in practice mean reward according to accessible merit, Hayek writes. Merit that other people can recognize and agree upon, and not merit merely in the sight of some higher power. The difficulty of identifying merit gives rise to a deeper problem. Given the inevitable disagreement about which activities are meritorious or worthy of praise, any attempt to base distributive justice on moral merit rather than economic value would lead to coercion. A society in which the position of the individual was made to correspond to human ideas of moral merit, Hayek writes, would therefore be the exact opposite of a free society. Rawls also points to widespread disagreement about merit and desert, and worries that basing justice on desert is at odds with freedom. Unlike Hayek, Rawls does not conceive freedom in market terms. For Rawls, freedom consists in pursuing our own conception of the good life while respecting the right of others to do the same. This means abiding by principles of justice that we and our fellow citizens would all agree to if each of us set aside our particular interests and advantages. Thinking about justice from this point of view without knowing whether we would be rich or poor, strong or weak, healthy or unhealthy, 
would not lead us to affirm whatever distribution of income resulted from the market. To the contrary, Rawls argues, it would lead us to accept only those inequalities that help the least advantaged members of society. Although Rawls rejects the distribution of income that results from a free market, he does have this in common with Hayek. Rawls's principles of justice do not seek to reward merit or virtue. In pluralist societies, people disagree about what counts as meritorious or virtuous. As these judgments depend on controversial conceptions of the best way to live, from Rawls's point of view, to base principles of justice on one such conception would be to undermine freedom. It would impose on some the values of others, and so fail to respect each person's right to choose and pursue his or her own conception of the good life. And so, despite their differences, both Hayek and Rawls reject the idea that economic rewards should reflect what people deserve. In doing so, they acknowledge that they are challenging conventional wisdom. The notion that justice means giving people what they deserve seems deeply embedded in untutored common opinion. Rawls notes the tendency for common sense to suppose that income and wealth should be distributed according to moral desert. And Hayek admits that his renunciation of merit may appear at first so strange and even shocking that he must ask the reader to suspend judgment until he can explain. But even as free market liberalism and welfare state liberalism set the terms of public discourse over the past half century, they did not dislodge the widely held conviction that what people earn should reflect what they deserve. To the contrary, during those decades, meritocratic attitudes toward success tightened their hold, even as mobility stalled and inequality deepened. markets, and merit. Here, then, is a puzzling feature of contemporary politics. Why, despite the rejection of meritocratic assumptions by the leading public philosophies of the day, do political rhetoric and public attitudes cleave to the notion that economic rewards either do align or should align with merit and desert? Is it simply that philosophy is too distant from the world to have any bearing on the way ordinary citizens think and act? Or do certain features of free market liberalism and welfare state liberalism open the way to meritocratic understandings of success that they officially reject? I believe the second is the case. A closer look at these two versions of liberalism reveals 
that their renunciation of merit and desert is not as thoroughgoing as may first appear. Both reject the meritocratic notion that in a fair competition, the rich are more deserving than the poor, but the alternatives they offer can nonetheless give rise to attitudes characteristic of meritocratic societies, hubris among the successful and resentment among the disadvantaged. This can be seen most clearly in Hayek's distinction between merit and value. Hayek rightly observes that conceiving income inequalities as reflections of unequal merit adds insult to injury. A society in which it was generally presumed that a high income was proof of merit and a low income of the lack of it, in which it was universally believed that position and remuneration corresponded to merit would probably be much more unbearable to the unsuccessful ones than one in which it was frankly recognized that there was no connection between merit and success. Hayek cites British Labour Party figure Anthony Crossland, whose influential book, The Future of Socialism, 1956, also emphasized the demoralizing effect that a meritocracy can have on those who do not rise. When opportunities are known to be unequal and the selection clearly biased toward wealth or lineage, people can comfort themselves for failure by saying that they never had a proper chance. The system was unfair. The scales too heavily weighted against them. This is Crosland. But if the selection is obviously by merit, this source of comfort disappears, and failure induces a total sense of inferiority with no excuse or consolation. And this, by a natural quirk of human nature, actually increases the envy and resentment at the success of others. Hayek argues that keeping in mind the difference between merit and value renders income inequalities less invidious. If everyone knew such inequalities had nothing to do with people's merit, the rich would be less proud and the poor less resentful than they would otherwise be. But if, as Hayek claims, economic value is a legitimate basis for inequality, it is not so clear that invidious attitudes toward success are undercut. For consider, how different really is the story the successful tell themselves if they believe their success measures the value of their contribution rather than their virtue or merit? And how different is the story the disadvantaged tell themselves if they believe their struggles do not reflect poorly on their character, only on the meager value of what they have to offer. Morally and psychologically, the distinction between merit and value becomes vanishingly thin. This is especially true in market societies, where money is the measure of most things. 
in such societies, reminding the wealthy that their wealth reflects only the superior value of their contributions to society is an unlikely antidote to hubris and self-congratulation. And reminding the poor that their poverty reflects only the inferior value of their contributions is hardly a bracing tonic to their self-esteem. The ease with which judgments of value can slide into judgments of merit reflects the familiar but questionable assumption that a person's market value is a good measure of his or her contribution to society. Hayek accepts this assumption uncritically. He simply points out that our market value is determined by factors beyond our control and so is not a measure of our merit. But he does not consider the possibility that the value of a person's contribution to society could be something other than his or her market value. Once market value is taken as a proxy for social contribution, however, it is hard to resist the thought that people deserve, as a matter of justice, whatever income corresponds to their market value or marginal product in the economist's jargon. According to standard economic analysis, perfectly competitive markets pay each worker the value of his or her marginal product, the value of output attributable to that worker. If, notwithstanding the complexity of the economy, it is possible to identify and individuate each person's market value in this way, and if market value is the true measure of social contribution, then it is a short step to concluding that people morally deserve to be paid according to their marginal product or market value. A recent version of this argument has been advanced by Harvard economist N. Gregory Mankiw, who served as an economic advisor to President George W. Bush. Mankiw begins by stating a widely held and intuitively appealing moral principle. People should get what they deserve. A person who contributes more to society deserves a higher income that reflects those greater contributions. He offers, as examples, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, and J.K. Rowling, author of the wildly popular Harry Potter books. Most people agree that they deserve the millions they have made, Mankiw suggests, because their high earnings reflect the great value to society of iPhones and riveting adventure tales. Mankiw would extend this reasoning to all incomes in a competitive market economy. Morality should endorse the results that competitive markets generate for care workers and hedge fund managers alike. Since each person's income reflects the value of what he contributed to society's production of goods and services, Mankiw argues, 
one might easily conclude that under these idealized conditions, each person receives his just deserts. The assertion that people morally deserve whatever income a competitive free market assigns them goes back to the early days of neoclassical economics. Critics of this notion, including some economists generally friendly to free markets, have long pointed out its defects. As we have seen, Hayek rejects this notion on the grounds that what people earn depends on native abilities that are no doing of the person endowed with them. It also depends on the vagaries of supply and demand. Whether the talents I have to offer are rare or plentiful is no doing of mine, and yet decisive for the income they command in the market. Mancu's just desserts theory ignores these contingencies. Market value versus moral value. Perhaps the most devastating critique of the idea that market outcomes reflect moral desert was advanced in the 1920s by Frank Knight, one of the founders of neoclassical economics. Knight, a critic of the New Deal, taught at the University of Chicago, where his students included Milton Friedman and others who would become leading libertarian economists. And yet, Knight took trenchant aim at the notion that markets reward merit. It is a common assumption that productive contribution is an ethical measure of desert, he wrote. But an examination of the question will readily show that productive contribution can have little or no ethical significance. Knight offers two arguments against attributing moral desert to market outcomes. One is the argument about talents, taken up by Hayek and Rawls, both of whom cite him. Having talents that enable me to cater to market demand is no more my own doing than inheriting valuable property. It is hard to see that possession of the capacity to furnish services which are in demand constitutes an ethical claim to a superior share of the social dividend, except to the extent, Knight wrote, that the capacity is itself the product of conscientious effort. Moreover, the income my talents command depends on how many other people also possess them. Having talents that happen to be scarce and yet highly prized certainly boosts my income, but it is nothing for which I can claim credit. Quote, it is hard to see how it is more meritorious merely to be different from other people than it is to be like them. Knight's second argument is more far-reaching. It questions an assumption that Hayek takes for granted. This is the assumption that equates market value with social contribution. As Knight points out, meeting market demand is not necessarily the same thing as making a truly valuable contribution to society. 
Serving market demand is simply a matter of satisfying whatever wants and desires people happen to have. But the ethical significance of satisfying such wants depends on their moral worth. Evaluating their worth involves moral judgments, admittedly contestable, that economic analysis cannot provide. So even setting aside the question of talents, it is a mistake to assume that the money people make by catering to consumer preferences reflects merit or moral desert. Its ethical significance depends on moral considerations that no economic model can supply. Here's Knight. We cannot accept want satisfaction as a final criterion of value because we do not in fact regard our wants as final. Instead of resting in the view that there is no disputing about tastes, we dispute about them more than anything else. Our most difficult problem in valuation is the evaluation of our wants themselves. And our most troublesome want is the desire for wants of the right kind. Knight's insight drives a wedge between two concepts that Hayek conflates. The value of an economic contribution as measured by the market and its actual value. Consider the high school chemistry teacher in the television series Breaking Bad, who employs his expertise as a chemist to make the highly sought after, though illegal, drug methamphetamine. The mess he cooks is so pure that it commands millions on the drug market, and the income he reaps far exceeds his modest pay as a teacher. Most would agree, however, that his contribution as a teacher has a far greater value than his contribution as a drug dealer. The reason has nothing to do with market imperfections or the fact that laws banning drugs limit the supply and so boost the profits of those who peddle them illegally. Even if meth were legal, a talented chemist might still make more money producing meth than teaching students. But this does not mean that a meth dealer's contribution is more valuable than a teacher's. Or consider the billionaire casino mogul Sheldon Adelson, one of the richest men in the world. He makes thousands of times more than a nurse or a doctor. But even assuming the markets for casino moguls and healthcare providers are perfectly competitive, there's no reason to believe that their market value reflects the true value of their contributions to society. This is because the value of their contributions depends on the moral importance of the ends they serve, not on how effectively they satisfy consumer demand. Caring for people's health is morally more important than catering to their desire to play slot machines. Knight further argues that the wants which an economic system operates to gratify 
are largely produced by the workings of the system itself. The economic order does not simply satisfy pre-existing demand. Its activity extends to the formation and radical transformation, if not to the outright creation of the wants themselves. Any ethical assessment of an economic system must therefore consider the kind of wants which it tends to generate or nourish, not only its efficiency in satisfying wants as they exist at any given time. These considerations lead Knight to reject the notion Mankiw defends, that in a perfectly competitive market, people morally deserve the marginal product of their labor. Knight derides such claims as, quote, the familiar ethical conclusions of apologetic economics. Although Knight, a skeptic of ambitious projects of social reform, is remembered as a leading proponent of laissez-faire economics, he inveighed against the idea that market prices are the measure of moral desert or ethical value. The product or contribution is always measured in terms of price, which does not correspond closely with ethical value or human significance. This is night. The money value of a product is a matter of the demand, which in turn reflects the tastes and purchasing power of the buying public and the availability of substitute commodities. All these factors are largely created and controlled by the workings of the economic system itself. Hence, their results can have in themselves no ethical significance as standards for judging the system. Although Knight does not claim to offer an ethical theory that could assess the moral importance of various wants and desires, he rejects the view familiar among economists, that there is no judging tastes, that it is impossible to rank some wants as higher or worthier than others. An economic system should be judged less by its efficiency in satisfying consumer demand than, quote, by the wants which it generates and the type of character which it forms in its people. Ethically, the creation of the right wants is more important than want satisfaction. By challenging the assumption that the market value of productive contributions has ethical significance, Knight offers a critique of meritocracy more thoroughgoing than Hayek's and one less susceptible to self-congratulation. Hayek tells the wealthy, that although their wealth is no measure of their merit, it does reflect the superior value of their contribution to society. For Knight, this is overly flattering. Being good at making money measures neither our merit nor the value of our contribution. All the successful can honestly say is that they have managed through some unfathomable mix of genius or guile, timing or talent, luck or pluck or grim determination 
to cater effectively to the jumble of wants and desires, however weighty or frivolous, that constitute consumer demand at any given moment. Satisfying consumer demand is not valuable in itself. Its value depends, case by case, on the moral status of the ends it serves. Deserving or entitled? It remains to ask how egalitarian liberalism also fuels meritocratic hubris, despite rejecting the idea that people morally deserve the economic rewards that markets confer. To begin, it is important to clarify what Rawls means by rejecting desert as the basis of justice. He does not mean that no one has a legitimate claim to the income or position he or she acquires. In a just society, those who work hard and play by the rules are entitled to what they earn. Here Rawls makes a subtle but important distinction between moral desert and what he calls entitlements to legitimate expectations. The difference is this. Unlike a desert claim, an entitlement can arise only once certain rules of the game are in place. It can't tell us how to set up the rules in the first place. Rawls's point is that we cannot know who is entitled to what until we first identify the principles of justice that should govern those rules and more broadly the basic structure of society. Here is how this distinction bears on the debate over meritocracy. To base justice on moral desert would be to set up the rules for the sake of rewarding the virtuous and the meritorious. Walls rejects this. He thinks it is a mistake to regard an economic system, or for that matter, a constitution, as a scheme for honoring virtue or cultivating good character. Considerations of justice are prior to considerations of merit and virtue. This is at the heart of Rawls's case against meritocracy. In a just society, those who become wealthy or attain prestigious positions are entitled to their success, not because it testifies to their superior merit, but only insofar as these benefits are part of a system that is fair to everyone, including the worst off members of society. A just scheme, then, answers to what men are entitled to, Rawls writes. It satisfies their legitimate expectations as founded upon social institutions, but what they are entitled to is not proportional to nor dependent upon their intrinsic worth. The principles of justice that define people's duties and rights do not mention moral desert, he writes, and there is no tendency for distributive shares to correspond to it. At stake in Rawls's renunciation of merit are two issues, one political, the other philosophical. Politically, Rawls wants to show that the affluent cannot legitimately object to redistributive taxation 
by claiming that their wealth is their due, something they morally deserve. This is the argument about the moral arbitrariness of talent and other contingencies that contribute to success. If success in a market economy depends heavily on luck, then it is hard to claim that the money we make is a reward for superior merit or desert. None of the precepts of justice aims at rewarding virtue, Rawls writes. The premiums earned by scarce natural talents, for example, are to cover the costs of training and to encourage the efforts of learning, as well as to direct ability to where it best furthers the common interest. The distributive shares that result do not correlate with moral worth, since the initial endowment of natural assets and the contingencies of their growth and nurture in early life are arbitrary from a moral point of view. Philosophically, the assertion that principles of justice must be defined independent of considerations of merit, virtue, or moral desert is an instance of a more general feature of Rawls's liberalism. This is the claim that the right, the framework of duties and rights that governs society as a whole, the right is prior to the good. And by the good, Rawls means the various conceptions of virtue and the good life that people pursue within the framework. Principles of justice that affirmed a particular conception of merit virtue or moral desert would not be neutral toward the competing conceptions of the good life that citizens in pluralist societies espouse. Such principles would impose on some the values of others and so fail to respect everyone's right to choose and pursue their own way of life. Rawls explains the priority of justice over merit by way of an analogy, we don't set up the institution of property because we believe thieves have bad character and we want an institution that will enable us to punish them for it. That would be, so to speak, a meritocratic theory of punishment. It would put the good before the right. But this gets the moral logic backward. Instead, we set up the institution of property for reasons of efficiency and justice. Then, if people steal, we enforce the law by punishing them. Having violated the rights of others, they become worthy of punishment. The point of punishment is to penalize thieves for committing an injustice, not to stigmatize them for bad character, though this may be a side effect. Rawls argues that a meritocratic approach to economic rewards would also reverse the proper relation between the right and the good. Quote, for a society to organize itself with the aim of rewarding moral desert as a first principle, would be like having the institution of property in order to punish thieves. 
Attitudes Toward Success On the face of it, Rawls's non-meritocratic way of thinking about economic success should be humbling for the successful and consoling for the disadvantaged. It should restrain the tendency toward meritocratic hubris among elites and prevent the loss of self-esteem for those who lack power or wealth. If I truly believe my success is due to my good fortune rather than my own doing, I am more likely to feel an obligation to share this good fortune with others. These sentiments are in short supply these days. Humility among the successful is not a prominent feature of contemporary social and economic life. One impetus to populist backlash is a widespread sense among working people that elites look down on them. To the extent this is the case, it could simply show that the contemporary welfare state falls short of Rawls's idea of a just society. Or it could suggest that egalitarian liberalism does not challenge the self-satisfaction of elites after all. It is certainly true that the contemporary welfare state, especially in the United States, does not live up to Rawls's vision of a just society. Many of the inequalities of income and power we witness today do not arise from a system of fair equality of opportunity or work to the advantage of the least well-off. This leads liberals to interpret working-class resentment against elites as a complaint about injustice. If this is the only basis of anger against elites, the solution is to double down on the project of expanding opportunity and improving the economic prospects of the least well-off. But this is not the only way of interpreting the populist backlash against elites. The hubristic attitudes toward success that invite this backlash could well be fueled by the sense of entitlement that Rawls's philosophy affirms, even as it rejects moral desert. For consider, even a society that is perfectly just as Rawls defines justice, admits certain inequalities, those that result from fair equality of opportunity and that work to the advantage of the least well-off. Imagine how, consistent with Rawlsian principles, a wealthy CEO could justify his or her advantages to a lower paid worker on the factory floor. I am not worthier than you, nor morally deserving of the privileged position I hold. My generous compensation package is simply an incentive necessary to induce me and others like me to develop our talents for the benefit of all. It is not your fault that you lack the talent society needs. Nor is it my doing that I have such talents in abundance. 
This is why some of my income is taxed away to help people like you. I do not morally deserve my superior pay and position, but I am entitled to them under fair rules of social cooperation. And remember, you and I would have agreed to these rules had we thought about the matter before we knew who would land on top and who at the bottom. So please do not resent me. My privileges make you better off than you would otherwise be. The inequality you find galling is for your own good. To be sure, this rationale would not justify all inequalities of income, wealth, power, and opportunity that exist today. What it reveals, however, is that meritocratic attitudes toward success are not necessarily softened or displaced by liberal theories of distributive justice. Entitlements to legitimate expectations may be as potent a source of meritocratic hubris and working-class resentment as claims based on merit, virtue, or desert. Recall the analogy with punishment. Even if the reason for punishing theft is to uphold the institution of property, a characteristic side effect of such punishment is to stigmatize thieves. Similarly, even if the reason for paying surgeons more than janitors is that such pay differentials are part of a just basic structure that works to the advantage of the least well-off, a predictable side effect of such pay differentials is to honor the special talents and contributions of surgeons. Over time, these normative side effects shape attitudes toward success and failure that are hard to distinguish from meritocratic ones. Social esteem flows almost ineluctably to those who enjoy economic and educational advantages, especially if they earn those advantages under fair terms of social cooperation. Liberals might reply that provided all members of society are accorded equal respect as citizens, the allocation of social esteem is not a political matter. Deciding what abilities and achievements are worthy of admiration is a matter of social norms and personal values, a matter of the good, not the right. But this reply overlooks the fact that the allocation of honor and recognition is a political question of central importance and has long been regarded as such. Aristotle considered justice to be mainly about the distribution of offices and honors, not the distribution of income and wealth. Today's populist revolt against elites is animated in large part by anger among working-class voters at what they take to be the disdain of the professional classes for those without a college degree. Insisting on the priority of the right over the good 
makes social esteem a matter of personal morality and so blinds liberals to the politics of hubris and humiliation. But it is folly to insist that the condescending attitudes of the credentialed professional classes toward blue-collar workers is a matter of social norms that politics cannot or should not address. Questions of honor and recognition cannot be neatly separated from questions of distributive justice. This is especially true when it turns out that patronizing attitudes toward the disadvantaged are implicit in the case for compensating them. Sometimes these attitudes find explicit expression. As Thomas Nagel, a liberal egalitarian philosopher, has written, when racial and sexual injustice have been reduced, we shall still be left with the great injustice of the smart and the dumb, who are so differently rewarded for comparable effort. The smart and the dumb is a telling phrase. It confirms populists' worst suspicions about liberal elites. Far from the democratic sensibility of Rawls, who seeks a society in which we share one another's faith, Nagel's phrase lays bare the meritocratic hubris to which some versions of welfare state liberalism are prone. Chance and Choice The tendency of welfare state liberalism to fuel the politics of hubris and humiliation became more explicit in the work of liberal egalitarian philosophers of the 1980s and 1990s. Building on Rawls's argument that the distribution of talents is arbitrary from a moral point of view, these philosophers argued that a just society should compensate people for bad luck of all kinds. Being born poor, disabled, or with meager talents, or suffering accidents and misfortunes in the course of life. As one such philosopher wrote, distributive justice stipulates that the lucky should transfer some or all of their gains due to luck to the unlucky. At first glance, this luck egalitarian philosophy, as it came to be known, seems a generous response to the accidents of fortune in seeking to redress the undeserved benefits and burdens that the lottery of life bestows, it seems to offer a humane alternative to a competitive meritocratic society. On closer inspection, however, the luck egalitarian philosophy requires exacting judgments of merit and desert because it argues that people should be compensated only insofar as their misfortune is due to factors beyond their control. It conditions public assistance for welfare, say, or health care on whether a needy person is needy due to bad luck or bad choices. 
This requires policymakers to figure out who among the poor are victims of circumstance and hence deserving of help, and who are responsible for their poverty and therefore undeserving. Elizabeth Anderson, a trenchant critic of luck egalitarianism, calls this distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor a revival of poor law thinking. It puts the state in the position of interrogating needy citizens to determine whether they might have averted their poverty by making better choices. This parsing of responsibility is a morally unattractive way of conceiving the obligations that democratic citizens owe one another for at least two reasons. First, it bases our obligation to help those in need, not on compassion or solidarity, but on how they came to be needy in the first place. In certain cases, this makes moral sense. Most people would agree that a capable person who refuses to work simply out of indolence, even when decent jobs are available, has a weak case for public support. Having chosen not to work, the person is responsible for the consequences. But some luck egalitarians assert a far more expansive notion of responsibility. They argue that even the failure to buy insurance for various possible adversities constitutes the kind of choice that makes people responsible for most any misfortune that befalls them. If, for example, an uninsured person suffers grievous injury in a car crash, the luck egalitarian wants to know whether she could have purchased an insurance policy. Only if no such policies were available or affordable would the community be obligated to help with the hospital bills. Second, beyond its severity toward the imprudent, luck egalitarianism demeans those who do qualify for public assistance by casting them as helpless victims. Here there is a paradox. Luck egalitarians place great moral weight on people's ability to choose. They seek to compensate for chance so people's income and life prospects can reflect their own choices. But this demanding ethic of responsibility and choice carries a harsh implication. Those who need help must be able to show that their neediness is not their own doing. To qualify for public assistance, they must present themselves and conceive of themselves as victims of forces beyond their control. This perverse incentive spills beyond the self-image of the claimants into the terms of public discourse. Liberals who defend the welfare state on the basis of luck egalitarianism are led, almost unavoidably, to a rhetoric of victimhood that views welfare recipients as lacking agency, as incapable 
of acting responsibly. But helping the disadvantaged on the grounds that they are victims of circumstances beyond their control carries a high moral and civic price. It supports the disparaging view that welfare recipients have little to contribute and are incapable of acting responsibly. And as Anderson rightly observes, denying that those in need of public support can exercise meaningful choice is hard to reconcile with respecting them as equal citizens capable of sharing in self-government. In short, luck egalitarianism offers no aid to those it labels irresponsible and humiliating aid to those it labels innately inferior, Anderson writes. Like the poor law regime, it abandons those disadvantaged through their own choices to their miserable fates and defines the deserving disadvantaged in terms of their innate inferiority of talent intelligence, ability, or social appeal. As with other versions of liberalism, the luck egalitarian philosophy begins by rejecting merit and desert as the basis of justice, but ends by reasserting meritocratic attitudes and norms with a vengeance. For Rawls, these norms re-enter in the guise of entitlement to legitimate expectations. For the luck egalitarians, they enter through an emphasis on individual choice and personal responsibility. The notion that we do not deserve the benefits and burdens that flow from luck, including the luck of having or lacking the talent society rewards, seems to undercut the meritocratic notion that under conditions of fair competition, we deserve what we earn. Advantages due to chance, not choice, are undeserved. But the line between chance and choice is complicated by the fact that sometimes people choose to take chances. Skydivers risk life and limb for the thrill. Young people who feel invincible, choose not to buy health insurance. Gamblers flock to casinos. Luck egalitarians say that those who choose to take risks are responsible for their fates when their bets go badly. The community owes help only to victims of bad luck they have not courted, being struck by a meteor, for example. Those who lose a bet they have willingly made can claim no help from the winners. Ronald Dworkin makes this point with his distinction between brute luck, the meteor victim, and option luck, the losing gambler. The contrast between chance and choice makes judgments of merit and desert unavoidable. Although no one deserves to lose at gambling, the losing gambler, having chose to bear the risk, deserves no help from the community in paying his gambling debts. He is responsible for his misfortune. 
Of course, it can sometimes be unclear what counts as genuine choice. Some gamblers suffer from addiction, and slot machines are programmed to manipulate gamblers to keep them playing. In these cases, gambling is less a choice than a coercive practice that preys on the vulnerable. But insofar as people freely choose to bear certain risks, the luck egalitarian considers them responsible for the consequences. They deserve their fate, at least in the sense that no one owes them help in meeting it. Beyond familiar disputes about what counts as a truly voluntary choice, the distinction between chance and choice is blurred by another consideration, the possibility of insurance. If my house burns down, this is surely bad luck. But what if affordable fire insurance were available and I had failed to buy it, hoping that no fire would ever occur and that I could save money by avoiding the yearly premium with impunity? Although the fire itself is brute luck, my failure to insure against it is a choice that converts the unfortunate incident into option luck. Having chosen not to buy an insurance policy, I am responsible for the consequences and cannot expect taxpayers to compensate me for the loss of my house. Of course, insurance is not available for all accidents and contingencies. Some people have the good luck to be born with the talent society prizes while others are born disabled in ways that make it hard to earn a living. Dworkin thinks the concept of insurance can be extended to deal with these contingencies as well. Since it is impossible to buy insurance before one is born, Dworkin suggests that we estimate the average amount people would pay to insure against being born with meager talents and use that figure to redistribute income from the talented to the untalented. The idea is to compensate for the unequal distribution of native ability by taxing those who have won out in the genetic lottery. There's reason to doubt that it's possible to calculate the premiums and payouts of a hypothetical insurance policy for the lack of native talent. But if it could be done, and if the talented were taxed, and the untalented were compensated accordingly, and if, furthermore, everyone had fair access to jobs and educational opportunities, then the luck egalitarian's ideal of a just society would be realized. All income differences due to undeserved gifts and handicaps would be compensated for, and all remaining inequalities would reflect factors for which we are responsible, such as effort and choice. And so the luck egalitarian's attempt to banish the effects of accident and misfortune points to a meritocratic ideal after all, a distribution of income based not on morally arbitrary contingencies, but on what people deserve.
Like egalitarianism defends inequalities that arise from effort and choice. This highlights a point of convergence with free market liberalism. Both emphasize personal responsibility and make the community's obligation to help the needy conditional on showing that their neediness is no fault of their own. Like egalitarians seek by their own account, to defend the welfare state from free market critics by accepting what they describe as the most powerful idea in the arsenal of the anti-egalitarian right, the idea of choice and responsibility. This reduces the disagreement between free market and egalitarian liberals to a debate about the conditions under which a person's choices can be considered truly free, rather than burdened by circumstance or necessity. Valorizing Talent Although free market and egalitarian liberalism both reject merit as a first principle of justice, they ultimately share a meritocratic bent. Neither effectively counters the morally unattractive attitudes toward success and failure to which meritocracies are prone. Hubris among the winners and humiliation among the losers. This has partly to do with their insistence on parsing personal responsibility. It also reflects their valorization of talent. Even as they insist that one's native abilities are a matter of luck and hence arbitrary from a moral point of view, they take talent, and in particular natural or innate talent, incredibly seriously. This is especially true of egalitarian liberals who attribute income inequality in large part to the results of the genetic lottery. They devise elaborate measures, such as Dworkin's hypothetical insurance scheme, to calculate and compensate for differences of natural or innate or inborn talent that, unlike social and cultural advantages, cannot be offset by equal educational opportunities. They base the case for redistribution on this biologistic conception of talent as a genetic fact given prior to social arrangements. But this way of conceiving talent as a kind of inborn excellence is a hubristic conceit even as egalitarian liberals seek to remedy the, quote, great injustice of the smart and the dumb, they valorize the smart and denigrate the dumb. One need not enter the fraught debate about the genetic basis of intelligence in order to see that the staggering inequalities of income and wealth we witness today have little to do with innate differences in intelligence. The notion 
that the outsized earnings of people who work in finance, business, and elite professions is due to their genetic superiority is far-fetched. While it may be true that the achievements of geniuses such as Einstein or virtuosos such as Mozart are the result of innate gifts, it is absurd to think that such surpassing natural genius is what separates hedge fund managers from high school teachers. As Elizabeth Anderson observes, it is doubtful that inferior native endowments have much to do with observed income inequalities in capitalist economies. Most differences in income are due to the fact, she points out, that society has invested far more in developing some people's talents than others, and that it puts very unequal amounts of capital at the disposal of each worker. Productivity attaches mainly to work roles, not to individuals. Natural talents, undeserved though they be, attract praise in meritocratic societies. This is partly because they are admired for their own sake, but it is also because they are thought to account for the vast winnings of the successful. If a meritocracy enables people to rise as far as their God-given talents will take them, it is tempting to assume that the most successful are the most gifted. But this is a mistake. Success at making money has little to do with native intelligence, if such a thing exists. By fixating on natural talent as a primary source of income inequality, egalitarian liberals exaggerate its role and inadvertently enlarge its prestige. Meritocracies rise. Meritocracy was born as a term of abuse, but became a term of praise and aspiration. New labor is committed to meritocracy, proclaimed Tony Blair in 1996, the year before he became Prime Minister of Britain. We believe that people should be able to rise by their talents, not by their birth or the advantages of privilege. In 2001, Campaigning for a second term, he said his mission was to break down the barriers that hold people back, to create real upward mobility, a society that is open and genuinely based on merit and the equal worth of all. He promised a strictly meritocratic program aimed at opening up economy and society to merit and talent. Michael Young by then 85 years old, with dismay. In an essay in The Guardian, he complained that Blair was celebrating an ideal that he, Young, had debunked in his satirical work four decades earlier. Young now feared his dark prediction had come true. I expected, he wrote, that the poor and the disadvantaged would be done down. And in fact, they have been. It is hard indeed in a society that makes so much of merit to be judged 
as having none. No underclass has ever been left as morally naked as that. Meanwhile, the rich and the powerful, insufferably smug, were riding high. If meritocrats believe, as more and more of them are encouraged to do, that their advancement comes from their own merits, they can feel they deserve whatever they can get. As a result, Young wrote, inequality has been becoming more grievous with every year that passes, and without a bleat than the leaders of the party who once spoke up so trenchantly and characteristically for greater equality. He did not know what could be done about this more polarized meritocratic society, but he wished that Mr. Blair would drop the word from his public vocabulary or at least admit to the downside. For the last several decades, the language of merit has dominated public discourse with little recognition of the downside. Even in the face of deepening inequality, the rhetoric of rising has provided, for mainstream parties at the center-left and center-right, the primary language of moral progress and political improvement. Those who work hard and play by the rules should be able to rise as far as their talents will take them. Meritocratic elites had become so accustomed to intoning this mantra that they failed to notice it was losing its capacity to inspire. Tone deaf to the mounting resentments of those who had not shared in the bounty of globalization, they missed the mood of discontent. The populist backlash caught them by surprise. They did not see the insult implicit in the meritocratic society they were offering. Six, the sorting machine. If meritocracy is the problem, what is the solution? Should we hire people based on nepotism or prejudice of various kinds, rather than their ability to do the job? Should we go back to the days when Ivy League colleges admitted the privileged sons of white, Protestant, upper-class families with little regard for their academic promise? No. Overcoming the tyranny of merit does not mean that merit should play no role in the allocation of jobs and social roles. Instead, it means rethinking the way we conceive success, questioning the meritocratic conceit that those on top have made it on their own. And it means challenging inequalities of wealth and esteem that are defended in the name of merit, but that foster resentment poison our politics, and drive us apart. Such rethinking should focus on the two domains of life most central 
to the meritocratic conception of success, education, and work. In the next chapter, I will show how the tyranny of merit undermines the dignity of work and how we might renew it. In this chapter, I show how higher education has become a sorting machine that promises mobility on the basis of merit, but entrenches privilege and promotes attitudes toward success corrosive of the commonality democracy requires. Colleges and universities preside over the system by which modern societies allocate opportunity. They confer the credentials that determine access to high-paying jobs and prestigious positions. For higher education, this role is a mixed blessing. Making colleges and universities the animating heart of meritocratic aspiration confers on them enormous cultural authority and prestige. It has made admission to elite colleges the object of fevered ambition and enabled a number of American universities to amass multi-billion dollar endowments. But converting these institutions into the bulwark of a meritocratic order may not be good for democracy, for the students who compete to attend them, or even for the colleges and universities themselves. James Conant's Meritocratic Coup d'Etat The notion of competitive college admissions as the gateway to opportunity is by now so familiar that it is easy to forget its novelty. The meritocratic mission of American higher education is of relatively recent origin, a product of the 1950s and 60s. During the early decades of the 20th century, admission to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, the influential big three of the Ivy League, depended on having attended one of the private boarding schools that catered to upper-class families of the Protestant elite. Academic ability mattered less than coming from the right social background and being able to afford the tuition. Each college had its own entrance exams, but even these were flexibly administered. Many who failed to get a passing grade were nonetheless admitted. Women were excluded. Black students were barred from Princeton and scarce at Harvard and Yale. And Jewish enrollment was restricted by formal or informal quotas. The notion of elite colleges as meritocratic institutions, whose purpose was to recruit and train the most talented students, whatever their backgrounds, to become leaders of society, found its most influential articulation in the 1940s by James Bryant Conant, the president of Harvard University. Conant, a chemist who served as a scientific advisor to the Manhattan Project during World War II, was troubled by the emergence at Harvard and throughout American society of a hereditary upper class. Such an elite was contrary to America's democratic ideals, he believed, and ill-suited to governing at a time when the country needed intelligence and 
scientific prowess as never before. Nicholas Lemon, author of An Illuminating History of Aptitude Testing in American Higher Education, describes the problem as Conant saw it. At Harvard and other leading universities, rich, heedless young men with servants, whose lives revolved around parties and sports, not studying, set the tone for college life. These men went on to dominate the leading law firms, Wall Street banks, the Foreign Service, research hospitals, and university faculties. Lemon writes, all the good places were reserved for members of a certain group, all male, Eastern, high Protestant, privately educated. No Catholics or Jews were allowed, except in rare cases that required of them a careful extirpation of any accent or other noticeable expression of their alien culture. Non-whites weren't in close enough range of membership in the elite to be excluded. And even the fiercest social reformers of the day didn't think to suggest that women ought routinely to participate in running the country. Conan's ambition was to upend this hereditary elite and replace it with a meritocratic one. His goal, Lemon writes, was to depose the existing undemocratic American elite and replace it with a new one made up of brainy, elaborately trained, publicly spirited people drawn from every section and every background. These people, men actually, would lead the country. They would manage the large technical organizations that would be the backbone of the late 20th century United States and create for the first time ever an organized system that would provide opportunity to all Americans. It was, in Lemon's words, an audacious plan for engineering a change in the leadership group and social structure of the country, a kind of quiet, planned coup d'etat. To pull off this meritocratic coup d'etat, Conant needed a way to identify the most promising high school students, however modest their family backgrounds, and recruit them for elite college educations. He began by creating a Harvard scholarship for talented students from public schools in the Midwest, who would be chosen based on a test of intellectual aptitude. In commissioning this test, Conant insisted that it measure native intelligence, not mastery of academic subjects, to avoid giving an advantage to those who had attended privileged secondary schools. The test he chose for this purpose, a version of an IQ test used by the Army during World War I, was called the Scholastic Aptitude Test, the SAT. In time, Conant's scholarship program was extended to students nationwide. The test he used to select them, the SAT, eventually came to be used to determine admission to colleges and universities across the country. As Lemon observes, the SAT would become not just a way of handing out a few scholarships at Harvard, but the basic mechanism for sorting the American population. Conant's attempt to transform Harvard into a meritocratic institution 
was part of a broader ambition to remake American society on meritocratic principles. He set out his vision in Education for a Classless Society, an address he delivered at the University of California and published in The Atlantic in 1940. Conant wanted to reclaim for American society the principle of equality of opportunity, now threatened by the development of a hereditary aristocracy of wealth. He cited Frederick Jackson Turner, the Harvard historian who had argued that the closing of the frontier cut off the traditional avenue of American opportunity, the ability to move west, to cultivate land, and to rise through effort and ingenuity unshackled by class-bound hierarchy. The most distinctive fact of the early period of American democracy, Turner had written, was the freedom of the individual to rise under conditions of social mobility. Turner, writing at the end of the 19th century, was perhaps the first to use the term social mobility. Conant called this concept the heart of my argument and used it to define his ideal of a classless society. Here's how he put it. A high degree of social mobility is the essence of the American ideal of a classless society. If large numbers of young people can develop their own capacities, irrespective of the economic status of their parents, then social mobility is high. If, on the other hand, the future of a young man or woman is determined almost entirely by inherited privilege, or the lack of it, social mobility is non-existent. If social mobility is high, Conant explained, sons and daughters must and can seek their own level, obtain their own economic rewards, engage in any occupation irrespective of what their parents might have done. But what, in the absence of an open frontier, could serve as the instrument of the mobility of fluid, classless society required? Conant's answer was education. As more and more Americans were attending high school, the secondary school system was becoming a vast engine, which, if operated properly, could aid us in recapturing opportunity a gift that once was the promise of the frontier. According to Conant's vision, however, the opportunity that widespread high school enrollment made possible consisted less in the education it provided than in the chance it presented to sort and rank students as candidates for higher education. In a highly industrialized society, Abilities must be assessed, he wrote. Talents must be developed. Ambitions guided. This is the task for our public schools. Although Conant believed it was important to educate all future citizens as members of a political democracy, this civic purpose of the public schools was secondary to their sorting function. More important than educating young people for citizenship was equipping them, quote, to step onto the first rung 
of whatever ladder of opportunity seems most appropriate. Conant acknowledged that this sorting role may seem an overwhelming burden to put upon our educational system, but he hoped the public schools could be reconstructed for this specific purpose. The public schools offered a broad recruiting ground for a new meritocratic elite. In support of his notion of culling from each generation those best suited for higher education and public leadership, Conant enlisted a formidable ally, Thomas Jefferson. Like Conant, Jefferson opposed an aristocracy of wealth and birth and wanted to replace it with an aristocracy of virtue and talents. Jefferson also believed that a well-designed educational system could be the mechanism for the selection of the youths of genius from among the classes of the poor. Nature had not vested talent exclusively in the wealthy, but had scattered it with an equal hand among all ranks of society. The challenge was to find it and cultivate it so that the most talented and virtuous could be educated and equipped to govern. Jefferson had proposed a system of public education for Virginia with this aim in mind. Those who did best in free public schools would be chosen to receive at public expense a higher degree of education at a district school. Those who excelled there would receive scholarships to attend the College of William and Mary and become leaders of society. Worth and genius would thus have been sought out from every condition of life, Jefferson wrote, and completely prepared by education for defeating the competition of wealth and birth for public trusts. Jefferson's plan was not adopted, but for Conant, it offered an inspiring precedent for the selective system of higher education he favored, one based on equality of opportunity and social mobility. Jefferson had not used either of those terms. He wrote instead of a natural aristocracy of talent and virtue that he hoped would prevail over an artificial aristocracy founded on wealth and birth. And he described his competitive scholarship plan in language that would have been impolitic in Conant's more democratic age. Twenty of the best geniuses, Jefferson wrote, will be raked from the rubbish annually and be instructed at the public expense. Intimations of the Tyranny of Merit Seen in retrospect, Jefferson's indelicate language highlights two potentially objectionable features of a meritocratic system of education that our language of social mobility and equal opportunity obscures. First, a fluid, mobile society based on merit, though antithetical to hereditary hierarchy, is not antithetical to inequality. To the contrary, it legitimates inequalities that arise from merit rather than birth. 
Second, a system that celebrates and rewards the best geniuses is prone to denigrate the rest, implicitly or explicitly, as rubbish, to use Jefferson's term. Even as he proposed a generous scholarship scheme, Jefferson offered an early instance of our own meritocratic tendency to valorize the smart and stigmatize the dumb. Conant addressed these two potential objections to a meritocratic order, the first more directly than the second. Regarding inequality, he frankly acknowledged that his ideal of a classless society did not aim at a more equal distribution of income and wealth. He sought a more mobile society, not a more equal one. What mattered was not easing the gap between rich and poor, but ensuring that people traded places in the economic hierarchy from one generation to the next, some moving up and others moving down from the status of their parents. For one generation at least, and perhaps two, Conant wrote, considerable differences in economic status, as well as extreme differentiation of employment may exist without the formation of classes. Power and privilege may be unequal, provided they are automatically redistributed at the end of each generation. As for the distasteful image of raking geniuses from the rubbish, Conant did not think the sorting he proposed would valorize those sorted in or denigrate those sorted out. We must proceed from the premise that there are no educational privileges, even at the most advanced levels of instruction, he wrote. No one channel should have a social standing above the other. As things turned out, Conant was too sanguine on both counts. Making higher education meritocratic did not bring about a classless society, nor did it avoid disparaging those excluded for the lack of talent. Some would say these developments simply reflect a failure to realize meritocratic ideals. But as Conant acknowledged, sorting for talent and seeking equality are two different projects. Conant's meritocratic vision was egalitarian in the sense that he wanted to open Harvard and other elite universities to the most talented students in the country, however modest their social and economic backgrounds. At a time when Ivy League colleges were dominated by families of established privilege, this was a noble ambition. But Conant was not concerned with expanding access to higher education. He did not want to increase the number of students attending college. He simply wanted to ensure that those who did attend were truly the most capable. The country would benefit by an elimination of at least a quarter or perhaps one half of those now enrolled in advanced university work, he wrote in 1938, and the substitution of others of more talent in their place. In line with this view, 
He opposed the GI Bill, enacted by FDR in 1944, which provided free college education for returning veterans. The nation did not need more students going to college, Conan thought. It needed better ones. During Conan's two decades as president, Harvard's admissions policy fell short of the meritocratic ideals he advocated. By the end of his tenure in the early 1950s, Harvard still rarely rejected the sons of alumni, admitting more than 87% of them. It continued to favor applicants from elite New England boarding schools, accepting most who applied, while holding public school applicants to higher academic standards. This was partly because the prep school students were so-called paying guests who did not need financial aid, but also because their upper-crust pedigree brought the cultural cachet that Ivy League schools still prized. Restrictions on the admission of Jewish students were quietly eased but not eliminated, reflecting a persisting fear that having too many Jews would drive away the upper-class Protestant boys whom Harvard most wished to enroll. The admission of women and attempts to recruit students from racial and ethnic minorities lay in the future. Conant's Meritocratic Legacy Although the Harvard of his day did not fully implement them, the meritocratic ideals Conant proclaimed have since come to define the self-understanding of American higher education. The arguments he advanced in the 1940s about the role of colleges and universities in a democratic society have become the conventional wisdom of our day. No longer in dispute, they have devolved into the routine rhetorical fare of commencement addresses and public pronouncements by college presidents Higher education should be open to talented students of all social and economic backgrounds, ideally without regard for their ability to pay. Although only the wealthiest colleges can afford need-blind admissions and financial aid, it is widely agreed that merit, not wealth, should be the basis of admission. While most colleges evaluate applicants on an array of factors, including academic promise, character, athletic prowess, and extracurricular activities. Academic merit is measured mainly by high school grades and scores on the SAT, the standardized test of intellectual aptitude that Conant championed. To be sure, the meaning of merit is fiercely contested. In debates over affirmative action, for example, some argue that counting race and ethnicity as factors in admission violates merit. Others reply that the ability to bring distinctive life experiences and perspectives to the classroom and the wider society is a merit relevant to a university's mission. But the fact that our debates about college admissions are typically about merit testifies to the hold of meritocratic ideals. Perhaps most deeply embedded 
is Conant's notion of higher education as the primary gateway to opportunity, a source of upward mobility that keeps society fluid by offering all students, whatever their social or economic background, the chance to rise as far as their talents will take them. Drawing on this idea, college presidents ritualistically remind us that excellence and opportunity go hand in hand. The fewer the social and economic barriers to college attendance, the greater the ability of colleges to recruit the most outstanding students and equip them to succeed. As each entering class arrives on campus for first-year orientation, they are lavished with praise for their excellence and diversity and for the talent and effort that have led to their admission. Rhetorically and philosophically, Conant's meritocratic ideology has won the day, but it has not played out the way he expected. SAT scores track wealth. First, the SAT, it turns out, does not measure scholarly aptitude or native intelligence independent of social and educational background. To the contrary, SAT scores are highly correlated with wealth. The higher your family income, the higher your score. At each successive rung on the income ladder, average SAT scores increase. For scores that put students in contention for the most selective colleges, the gap is especially stark. If you come from a family with an annual income greater than $200,000, your chance of scoring above 1,400 out of 1,600 is one in five. If you come from a poor family, less than $20,000 per year, your chance is one in 50. Those in high-scoring categories are also, overwhelmingly, children of parents with college degrees. Beyond the general educational advantages well-off families can provide, the SAT scores of the privilege are boosted by the use of private test prep courses and tutors. Some, in places like Manhattan, charge as much as $1,000 per hour for one-on-one -on -one tutoring. As meritocratic competition for college admission has intensified in recent decades, tutoring and test prep has become a billion-dollar industry. For years, the College Board, which administers the SAT, insisted that its test measured aptitude and that scores were unaffected by tutoring. It recently dropped that pretense and entered a partnership with the Khan Academy to provide free online SAT practice to all test takers. Although this was a worthy undertaking, it did little to level the test prep playing field as college board officials hoped and claimed it would. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, students from families with higher incomes and education levels made greater use of the online help than did students from disadvantaged backgrounds, resulting in an even greater scoring gap between the privileged and the rest. For Conant, 
A test of aptitude, or IQ, held promise as a democratic measure of academic ability, untainted by educational disadvantage and the vagaries of high school grades. This is why he opted for the SAT to choose his scholarship students. He would be surprised to learn that high school grades are better than SAT scores at identifying low-income students who are likely to succeed in college. Comparing the predictive power of test scores and grades is a tangled matter. For two-thirds of students, they are more or less aligned. But for those whose SAT scores and grades are discrepant, the SAT helps the privileged and hurts the disadvantaged. While high school grades are to some extent correlated with family income, SAT scores are more so. This is partly because, contrary to long-standing claims by the testing industry, the SAT is coachable. Private tutoring helps, and a profitable industry has arisen to teach high school students the gimmicks and tricks to boost their scores. Meritocracy entrenches inequality. Second, the system of meritocratic admission that Conant promoted did not lead to the classless society he hoped it would produce. Inequalities of income and wealth have deepened since the 1940s and 50s, and the social mobility that Conant saw as the remedy for a stratified society has not come about. The haves and have-nots have not been trading places from one generation to the next. As we have seen, relatively few children of the poor rise to affluence, and relatively few children of affluence fall below the ranks of the upper middle class. Notwithstanding the American dream of rising from rags to riches, Upward mobility is less common in the United States than in many European countries, and there is no evidence of improvement in recent decades. More to the point, higher education in the age of meritocracy has not been an engine of social mobility. To the contrary, it has reinforced the advantages that privileged parents confer on their children. Of course, the demographic and academic profile of students on elite college campuses has changed for the better since the 1940s. The hereditary aristocracy of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant wealth that Conant sought to displace no longer predominates. Women are admitted on equal terms with men. Colleges actively recruit for racial and ethnic diversity and about half of today's Ivy League students identify themselves as students of color. The quotas and informal practices limiting Jewish enrollment that prevailed during the first half of the 20th century have disappeared. The favoritism that Harvard, Yale, and Princeton long accorded young men from upper-class boarding schools receded in the 1960s and 70s so did the routine admission to Ivy League colleges of any minimally qualified son of an alumnus. 
academic standards improved, and median SAT scores increased. The best endowed colleges and universities adopted need-blind admissions and generous financial aid policies, removing a major financial barrier for promising students of modest means. These are undeniable achievements. And yet, the meritocratic revolution in higher education did not bring about the social mobility and broad opportunity that its early proponents expected and that educational leaders and politicians continue to promise. America's selective colleges and universities ousted the complacent, entitled, hereditary elite that worried Conant. But this aristocracy of inherited privilege has given way to a meritocratic elite that is now as privileged and entrenched as the one it replaced. Though far more inclusive in terms of gender, race, and ethnicity, this meritocratic elite has not produced a fluid, mobile society. Instead, today's credentialed professional classes have figured out how to pass their privileges onto their children, not by bequeathing them large estates, but by equipping them with the advantages that determine success in a meritocratic society. Notwithstanding its newfound role as the arbiter of opportunity and the engine of upward mobility, higher education has not provided a significant counterweight to the rising inequality of recent times. Consider the class composition of higher education today, especially in its most selective domains. Most students at selective colleges and universities are from affluent families. Very few are from low-income backgrounds. More than 70% of those who attend the hundred or so most competitive colleges in the United States come from the top quarter of the income scale. Only 3% come from the bottom quarter. The wealth gap in college enrollment is most acute at the top. At Ivy League colleges, Stanford, Duke, and other prestigious places, there are more students from the wealthiest 1% of families than from the entire bottom half of the country. At Yale and Princeton, only about one student in 50 comes from a poor family, that is in the bottom 20%. If you come from a rich family in the top 1%, your chances of attending an Ivy League school are 77 times greater than if you come from a poor family, the bottom 20%. Most people from the bottom half of the income scale attend a two-year college or none at all. Over the last two decades, elite private colleges have offered more generous financial aid and the federal government has increased college funding for students of modest means. Harvard and Stanford, for example, now provide free tuition room and board to any student whose family makes less than $65,000 per year. Despite these measures, however, the share of students from low-income families at selective colleges 
has changed little since 2000, and in some cases has drifted downward. The percentage of first-generation students, the first in their families to attend college, at Harvard today is no higher than it was in 1960. Jerome Carabell, the author of A History of Admissions Policies at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, concludes that the children of the working class and the poor are about as unlikely to attend the big three, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, today as they were in 1954. Why Elite Colleges Are Not Engines of Mobility The academic reputations, scientific contributions, and rich educational offerings of America's leading colleges and universities are admired throughout the world, but these institutions are not effective engines of upward mobility. Recently, the economist Raj Chetty and a team of colleagues undertook a comprehensive study of the role of colleges in promoting intergenerational mobility, examining the economic trajectory of 30 million college students from 1999 to 2013. For each college in the United States, they calculated the proportion of its students who rose from the bottom rung on the income ladder to the top that is from the bottom 20% to the top 20%. They asked, in other words, what proportion of students at each college came from a poor family, but wound up earning enough to reach the top 20%. Their finding, higher education today does surprisingly little to promote upward mobility. This is especially true at elite private colleges. Although attending a place like Harvard or Princeton does give a poor kid a good chance of rising, such places enroll so few poor kids to begin with that their mobility rate is low. Only 1.8% of Harvard students and only 1.3% at Princeton rise from the bottom to the top of the income scale. One might expect things to be different at the major public universities, but they too enroll so many already affluent students that they contribute little to upward mobility. The mobility rate at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor is only 1.5%. It's class-skewed profile is similar to Harvard's. Two-thirds of its students come from well-off families. Poor kids are even scarcer in Ann Arbor, fewer than 4%, than at Harvard. A similar pattern holds true at the University of Virginia, with the mobility rate of only 1.5%, due largely to the fact that fewer than 3% of its students come from poor families to begin with. Shetty and his team did identify some less famous public universities and state colleges with higher mobility rates. These schools are both accessible to low-income students and successful at helping them rise. Cal State University at Los Angeles, for example, 
in the State University of New York at Stony Brook enable nearly 10% of their students to rise from the bottom rung to the top, about five times the mobility rate of Ivy League colleges and the most selective public universities. But these institutions are the exception. Taken together, the 1,800 colleges and universities Chetty studied, private and public, selective and non-selective, enabled fewer than 2% of their students to rise from the bottom fifth of the income scale to the top fifth. Some might ask whether propelling students in one generation from the bottom quintile to the top is too demanding a test of mobility. But even more modest ascents are relatively rare. At elite private colleges and universities, only about one student in 10 manages to rise even two rungs on the income ladder. American colleges and universities enable surprisingly few students to rise despite the fact that attending such places does enhance one's economic prospects. College graduates, especially from prestigious places, do have a major edge in landing lucrative jobs. But these schools have little impact on upward mobility because most of their students are well off in the first place. American higher education is like an elevator in a building that most people enter on the top floor. In practice, most colleges and universities do less to expand opportunity than to consolidate privilege. For those who look to higher education as the primary vehicle of opportunity, this is sobering news. It calls into question an article of faith in contemporary politics, that the answer to rising inequality is greater mobility and that the way to increase mobility is to send more people to college. Although this vision of opportunity is invoked by politicians across the ideological spectrum, it fits less and less well with the lived experience of a great many people, especially those who lack a college degree but aspire nonetheless to dignified work and a decent life. This is a reasonable aspiration that a meritocratic society ignores at its peril. For the credentialed classes, it is easy to forget that most of our fellow citizens do not have a college degree, constantly admonishing them to better their condition by getting one, what you earn depends on what you learn, can be more insulting than inspiring. What then to do about higher education? Should it retain its current role as the arbiter of opportunity? And should we continue to assume that opportunity consists in equal access to the meritocratic tournament that college admissions has become? Some say yes, provided we can improve the fairness of the tournament. They argue that the dearth of low-income students in higher education points not to a flaw in meritocratic admissions, 
but to a failure to implement them consistently. According to this view, the cure for meritocracy's ills is a more thoroughgoing meritocracy, one that gives talented students equal access to college, whatever their social and economic background. Making meritocracy more fair. On its face, this is a sensible position, improving educational opportunities for poor but gifted students is an unqualified good. In recent decades, colleges and universities have made important strides in recruiting African-American and Latinx students, but have done little to increase the proportion of lower-income students. In fact, as public debate has raged about affirmative action for racial and ethnic minorities, colleges have quietly practiced what amounts to affirmative action for the wealthy. For example, many selective colleges and universities give preference to the children of alumni, legacies, as they are called, on the grounds that admitting them builds community spirit and generates gifts to the endowment. At elite colleges, alumni children are as much as six times more likely than other applicants to win admission. Overall, Harvard admits only one applicant in 20 of legacy applicants. It accepts one out of three. Some schools also ease academic standards to admit children of wealthy donors who are not alumni, reasoning that it is worth accepting some less than stellar students in exchange for a new library or scholarship fund. During a fundraising campaign in the late 1990s and early 2000s, Duke University devoted about 100 places per year in the entering class to children of wealthy donors who might not otherwise have been admitted. Although some faculty worried about compromising academic standards, the policy helped boost Duke's endowment and improve its competitive standing. Documents filed in a recent court case about Harvard's admissions policy revealed that nearly 10% of its students are admitted with the help of donor connections. Preferences for recruited athletes is another boon to affluent applicants. It is sometimes assumed that lowering academic standards for athletes especially in high-profile sports such as football and basketball, helps enroll students from underrepresented minorities and low-income backgrounds. But on the whole, applicants who benefit from athletic preferences are disproportionately wealthy and white. This is because most of the sports for which elite colleges recruit are pursued mainly by well-off kids, squash, lacrosse, sailing, crew, golf, water polo, fencing, even horseback riding. Preferential admission for athletes is not limited to powerhouse football schools such as Michigan and Ohio State, whose bowl-bound teams fill massive stadiums. At Williams College, a small prestigious liberal arts college in New England, 30% of the class consists of athletic recruits 
Few of these student-athletes come from disadvantaged backgrounds. A study of 19 selective colleges and universities, co-authored by the former president of Princeton, found that recruited athletes enjoy greater admissions advantages than either underrepresented minorities or alumni children, and that only 5% of them come from the bottom quarter of the income scale. Colleges could try to address this unfairness in various ways. They could undertake class-based affirmative action by according students from poor families the same preferences they currently give legacies, donor children, and recruited athletes. Or they could reduce the advantages they give wealthy applicants by ending these preferences altogether. In addition, colleges could offset the advantages affluent applicants enjoy due to SAT scores inflated by private tutoring and test prep by no longer requiring these standardized tests, as the University of Chicago and other schools have recently done. Studies have shown that SAT scores are more likely than high school grades to be distorted as predictors of academic performance by socioeconomic background. Relying on them less would enable colleges to enroll more students of modest means with little, if any, loss in rates of academic success. These are steps that colleges could take on their own. Government could also intervene to make college admission less biased in favor of the privileged. Senator Edward Kennedy, himself a legacy student at Harvard, once proposed requiring private colleges to make public the acceptance rates for alumni children and report their socioeconomic profile. Daniel Markovitz, a Yale law professor and critic of meritocratic inequality, would go further. He has proposed denying private universities their tax-exempt status unless they admit at least half of their students from the bottom two-thirds of the income scale, ideally by expanding enrollments. These measures whether undertaken by the colleges themselves or by government mandate, would ease the inequality that makes higher education a weak force for social mobility. They would reduce the unfairness of the system by improving access for the less privileged. These are compelling reasons to consider them. But focusing only on the unfairness of the current system begs a bigger question at the heart of Conant's meritocratic revolution. Should colleges and universities take on the role of sorting people based on talent to determine who gets ahead in life? There are at least two reasons to doubt that they should. The first concerns the invidious judgments such sorting implies for those who get sorted out and the damaging consequences for a shared civic life. The second concerns the injury the meritocratic struggle inflicts on those who get sorted in and the risk that the sorting mission becomes so all-consuming that it diverts colleges and universities 
from their educational mission. In short, turning higher education into a hyper-competitive sorting contest is unhealthy for democracy and education alike. Consider each of these dangers in turn. Sorting and the Allocation of Social Esteem Conant was aware of the risk that converting universities into sorting mechanisms could sow social discord, but he thought this risk could be avoided. His goal was to use testing and tracking to direct each person to the social role that made best use of his talents. He still assumed that only men's talents needed to be tested and tracked, but without implying that the most talented people were worthier than others. He did not believe that educational sorting would generate judgments of social superiority or prestige as the old system of inherited privilege had done. Conant's faith that it is possible to sort people without judging them ignores the moral logic and psychological appeal of the meritocratic regime he helped launch. One of the primary arguments for a meritocracy over a hereditary aristocracy is that those who rise due to their own merits have earned their success and therefore deserve the rewards their merits bring. Meritocratic sorting is bound up with judgments about earning and deserving. These are inescapably public judgments about whose talents and achievements are worthy of honor and recognition. Conant's conviction that higher education should shift power away from the hereditary upper class and seek out talented scientists and intellectuals was not only a way of filling socially necessary roles. It was also an argument about what qualities of intellect and character a modern, technologically advanced society should value and reward. So it was implausible to deny that the new system of sorting was also a new basis for allocating social status and esteem. This was the point of Michael Young's Rise of the Meritocracy, published just a few years after Conan stepped down as president of Harvard. Young saw what Conant either failed or refused to see, that the new meritocracy carried with it a new exacting basis for judging who was deserving and who was not. Those following Conant, who helped carry out the meritocratic makeover of higher education, were explicit about the connection between sorting and judging. In a book entitled Excellence, 1961, John W. Gardner, a foundation president who would later serve as Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare in Lyndon Johnson's administration, expressed the spirit of the new meritocratic age. Here's how he put it. We are witnessing a revolution in society's attitude toward men and women of high ability and advanced training. For the first time in history, 
Such men and women are very much in demand on a very wide scale. Unlike previous societies, which were run by the few and could therefore afford to squander talent, a modern technological society governed by complex organizations needed to mount a relentless search for talent, to seek it out wherever it was to be found. The imperatives of this great talent hunt, as he called it, now set the task for education to become a rigorous sorting out process. Unlike Conant, Gardner acknowledged the harsh aspect of meritocratic sorting. Quote, as education becomes increasingly effective in pulling the bright youngster to the top, it becomes an increasingly rugged sorting out process for everyone concerned. The schools are the golden avenue of opportunity for able youngsters, but by the same token, they are the arena in which less able youngsters discover their limitations. This was the downside of equality of opportunity. It enabled, as Gardner put it, every young person to go as far as his ability and ambition would take him, without obstacles of money, social standing, religion, or race. But there was pain involved for those who lacked the necessary ability. Such pain was inevitable, Gardner thought, and a price worth paying given the urgent need to cull and cultivate talent. He acknowledged that the pain became especially acute as some students qualified for college and others fell short. Quote, if a society sorts people out efficiently and fairly according to their gifts, the loser knows that the true reason for his lowly status is that he is not capable of better. That is a bitter pill for any man. For Michael Young, this insight was the heart of the case against meritocracy. For Gardner, it was an unfortunate side effect. Because college has gained extraordinary prestige, he conceded. It had come to define success. Today, attendance at college has become virtually a prerequisite of high attainment in the world's eyes, he wrote, so that it becomes, in this false value framework we have created, the only passport to a meaningful life. Gardner gamely argued that achievement should not be confused with human worth, and that individuals were worthy of respect regardless of their achievements. But he seemed to understand that the meritocratic society he was helping bring about left little room for the distinction between educational achievement and social esteem. He put it this way, the plain fact is that college education is firmly associated in the public mind with personal advancement, upward social mobility, market value, and self-esteem, and if enough of the American people believe that one must attend college in order to be accorded respect and confidence, then the very unanimity of opinion makes the generalization true. A few years later, 
Kingman Brewster, the president of Yale, also acknowledged the close connection between sorting students based on merit and turning college admission into a badge of social recognition and esteem. Brewster, who brought Yale into the meritocratic era, encountered resistance from influential members of his governing board to his attempts to base admission less on family legacy and more on academic talent. In 1966, Yale adopted need-blind admissions, which meant admitting students without regard for their financial need and providing them sufficient financial support to enroll. Brewster argued, shrewdly but insightfully, that the new policy would not only enable Yale to attract strong students from modest backgrounds, it would also increase Yale's appeal to wealthy students who would be drawn to a college known to accept students based on their merits, not their money. Now that the pocketbook was no longer relevant to admission, he wrote, the privileged took pride in the feeling that they had made it on the merits rather than on the basis of something ambiguously called background. Once, people took pride in sending their children to places where they could rub elbows with upper-class blue bloods. Now people took pride in sending their children to places that signified their superior merit. The shift to meritocratic admissions heightened the prestige of colleges that could attract the most outstanding students. Prestige was typically measured by the average SAT scores of the students they admitted, and also, perversely, by the number of applicants they were able to reject. Increasingly, colleges were ranked by their selectivity, and selectivity loomed larger in students' choices. Until the 1960s, college-bound students typically enrolled in places close to home. As a result, academic ability was spread broadly across a range of colleges and universities. But as the meritocratic recasting of higher education took form, college choice became more strategic. Students, especially those from high-income families, began to seek out the most selective college that would accept them. Carolyn M. Hawksby, an economist who studies higher education, calls this trend the resorting of higher education. The gap between highly selective and less selective colleges widened. Students with high SAT scores clamored for admission to the handful of colleges with other high-scoring students, and college admission became a winner-take-all competition. Although many assume that getting into college is harder today than in the past, this is not generally the case. The majority of colleges and universities in the United States accept most students who apply. Only at a narrow slice of elite colleges have admissions rates plunged in recent decades. These are the places that capture the headlines 
and animate the admissions frenzy that blights the teenage years of college-bound kids from affluent families. In 1972, as the resorting was already well underway, Stanford accepted one third of those who applied. Today, it accepts less than five percent. Johns Hopkins, which accepted the majority of its applicants in 1988, now accepts only nine percent. The University of Chicago experienced one of the most precipitous drops. From a 77% acceptance rate in 1993 to 6% in 2019, all told, 46 colleges and universities now accept fewer than 20% of applicants. Several of these schools were the desired destination of students whose parents perpetrated. The 2019 college admissions scandal, but only four percent of U.S. undergraduates attend these hyper-selective colleges. More than 80 percent attend schools that accept more than half of their applicants. What accounts for the resorting that over the past 50 years has concentrated high-scoring students? In a relatively small group of highly selective colleges, Hawksby offers an economist's explanation: lower transportation costs made it easier to travel to colleges far from home, and lower information costs made it easier to find out how your SAT score compared with those of other students. In addition, the most prestigious colleges spend more on the education of each student. So, for those who can get in, enrolling at such places is a sound investment in one's human capital, even allowing for the expected donation to the college fund later in life. But the fact that this resorting coincided with the meritocratic transformation of higher education suggests a further explanation. Selective colleges and universities became irresistibly attractive because they stood at the apex of the emerging hierarchy of merit. Prompted by their parents, ambitious, well-off students flooded the gates of prestigious campuses, not only because they wanted to study in the company of academically gifted students. But because these colleges conferred the greatest meritocratic prestige, more than a matter of bragging rights, the kudos associated with attending a highly selective college carry over into employment opportunities after graduation. This is not mainly because employers believe students learn more at elite colleges than at less selective places. But because employers have faith in the sorting function these colleges perform and value the meritocratic honor they bestow. Wounded winners. 
The winner-take-all resorting of higher education was undesirable for two reasons. First, it reinforced inequality, as the colleges that fared best in the selectivity sweepstakes were generally the ones with the highest proportion of wealthy students. Second, it exacted a damaging toll on the winners. Unlike the old hereditary elite, which assumed its place at the top without much fuss or bother, the new meritocratic elite wins its place through strenuous striving. Although the new elite has now taken on a hereditary aspect, the transmission of meritocratic privilege is not guaranteed. It depends on getting in. This gives meritocratic success a paradoxical moral psychology. Collectively and retrospectively, its results are almost preordained. Given the overwhelming predominance on elite campuses of affluent kids, but to those in the midst of the hyper-competitive struggle for admission, it is impossible to view success as anything other than the result of individual effort and achievement. This is the standpoint that generates the conviction among the winners that they have earned their success, that they have made it on their own. This belief can be criticized as a form of meritocratic hubris. It attributes more than it should to individual striving and forgets the advantages that convert effort into success. But there is also poignance in this belief, for it is forged in pain, in the soul-destroying demands that meritocratic striving inflicts upon the young. Prosperous parents are able to give their kids a powerful boost in the bid for admission to elite colleges, but often at the cost of transforming their high school years into a high-stress, anxiety-ridden, sleep-deprived gauntlet of advanced placement courses, test prep tutoring, sports training, dance and music lessons, and a myriad of extracurricular and public service activities often under the advice and tutelage of private admissions consultants whose fees can cost more than four years at Yale. Some of these consultants advise parents to seek disability diagnoses for their children to give them extra time on standardized tests. In one wealthy Connecticut suburb, 18% of students receive such diagnoses more than six times the national average. Other consultants specialize in creating customized summer foreign travel programs designed to produce compelling fodder for college application essays. This meritocratic arms race tilts the competition in favor of the wealthy and enables affluent parents to pass their privilege onto their kids. This way of transmitting privilege is doubly objectionable. For those who lack the apparatus of advantage, it is unfair. For children entangled in the apparatus, it is oppressive. The meritocratic struggle gives rise to a culture of invasive, achievement-driven, pushy parenting that does not serve teenagers well. 
the rise of helicopter parenting coincides with the decades when meritocratic competition intensified. In fact, the use of parent as a verb only became common in the 1970s when the need to prepare children for academic success came to be seen as a pressing parental responsibility. From 1976 to 2012, the amount of time American parents devoted to helping their children with their homework increased more than fivefold as the college admission stakes grew. Anxious, intrusive parenting became a common affliction. A 2009 Time magazine cover story sounded the alarm. The case against overparenting why it is time for mom and dad to cut the strings. We had become so obsessed with our kids' success, Time observed, that parenting turned into a form of product development. The drive to manage childhood now began early. Among six to eight-year-olds, free playtime dropped 25% from 1981 to 1997, and homework more than doubled. In an intriguing study, the economists Matthias Dopke and Fabrizio Silabotti offer an economic explanation for the rise of helicopter parenting, which they define as the heavily involved, time-intensive, controlling, child-rearing approach that has become widespread over the last three decades. They argue that such parenting is a rational response to rising inequality and increasing returns to education. Although intensive parenting has increased in many societies in recent decades, it is most pronounced in places where inequality is greatest, such as the United States and South Korea, and less prevalent in countries such as Sweden and Japan, where inequality is less acute. Understandable though it may be, Parents strive to direct and manage their children's lives for meritocratic success. It's taken a harsh psychological toll, especially on pre-college teenagers. In the early 2000s, Madeline Levine, a psychologist who treats young people in Marin County, California, an affluent suburb of San Francisco, began noticing that many outwardly successful teens from well-off families were extremely unhappy, disconnected, and lacking in independence. Scratch the surface, she wrote, and many of them are depressed, anxious, and angry. They are overly dependent on the opinions of parents, teachers, coaches, and peers, and frequently rely on others, not only to pave the way on difficult tasks, but to grease the wheels of everyday life as well. She began to realize that rather than insulating these young people from life's difficulties, affluence and a high degree of parental involvement were contributing to their unhappiness and fragility. In a book entitled The Price of Privilege, Levine described what she called a mental health epidemic among privileged youth. Traditionally, psychologists had assumed that at-risk youth were disadvantaged kids in the inner city, 
growing up in harsh and unforgiving circumstances. Without denying their plight, Levine observed that America's new at-risk group consisted of teens from affluent, well-educated families. In spite of their economic and social advantages, she wrote, they experience among the highest rates of depression, substance abuse, anxiety disorders, somatic complaints, and unhappiness of any group of children in this country. When researchers look at kids across the socioeconomic spectrum, they find that the most trouble adolescents often come from affluent homes. Levine cited research by Sunia S. Luther, who has documented the counterintuitive notion that upper-middle-class youth, who are en route to the most prestigious universities and well-paying careers in America, suffer higher rates of emotional distress than other teens, a pattern that continues once they reach college. Compared with the general population, full-time college students are 2.5 times more likely to meet diagnostic criteria of substance abuse or dependence. And half of all full-time college students report binge drinking and abuse of illegal or prescription drugs. What accounts for the inordinate levels of emotional distress among young people from affluent families? The answer has largely to do with the meritocratic imperative, the unrelenting pressure to perform, to achieve, to succeed. For children and parents alike, Luther writes, it is nearly impossible to ignore the ubiquitous, pervasive message emblazoned from their early years onward. There is one path to ultimate happiness, having money, that in turn comes from attending prestigious colleges. Those who prevail on this battlefield of merit emerge triumphant but wounded. I see this in my students. The habit of hoop jumping is hard to break. Many still feel so driven to strive that they find it difficult to use their college years as a time to think, explore, and critically reflect on who they are and what is worth caring about. An alarming number struggle with mental health issues. The psychic toll of navigating the meritocratic gauntlet is not restricted to the Ivy League. A recent study of 67,000 undergraduates at more than 100 colleges in the United States found that college students face unprecedented levels of distress including rising rates of depression and anxiety. One in five college students reported thoughts of suicide in the previous year, and one in four was diagnosed or treated for a mental health disorder. The suicide rate among young people ages 20 to 24 increased 36% from 2000 to 2017 more now die from suicide than homicide. Beyond these clinical conditions, psychologists have found a subtler affliction bearing down on this generation of college students, 
a hidden epidemic of perfectionism. Years of anxious striving leave young people with a fragile sense of self-worth, contingent on achievement and vulnerable to the exacting judgments of parents, teachers, admissions committees, and ultimately themselves. Irrational ideals of the perfect self have become desirable, even necessary, in a world where performance, status, and image define a person's usefulness and value, write Thomas Curran and Andrew P. Hill, the authors of the study. Surveying more than 40,000 American, Canadian, and British college students, the authors report a sharp increase in perfectionism from 1989 to 2016, including a 32% increase in perfectionist attitudes tied to social and parental expectations. Perfectionism is the emblematic meritocratic malady. At a time when young people are relentlessly sorted, sifted, and ranked by schools, universities, and the workplace, the authors write, neoliberal meritocracy places a strong need to strive, perform, and achieve at the center of modern life. Success or failure at meeting the demand to achieve comes to define one's merit and self-worth. Those who tend the levers and pulleys of the meritocracy machine are not unaware of its human costs. In an honest, insightful essay about the risk of burnout, Harvard College admissions officers worried that those who spend their high school and college years jumping through hoops of high achievement wind up as, quote, dazed survivors of some bewildering lifelong boot camp. The essay, first published in 2000, is still posted as a kind of cautionary tale on the Harvard Admissions website. Still Hoop Jumping Having fomented and rewarded achievement mania by their admissions policies, elite colleges do little to dial it back once students arrive on campus. The instinct for sorting and competing invades college life, where students reenact the ritual of accepting and rejecting. Here's an example. Harvard College has more than 400 extracurricular clubs and organizations. Some, such as the orchestra and varsity football team, require certain abilities and so legitimately hold tryouts. But today, comping, or competing for admission to student organizations, whether or not they demand special skills, has become commonplace. The culture of comping is so extreme that some students experience freshman year as Rejection 101, a lesson in dealing with the disappointment of failing to make the cut. Like the colleges themselves, the student organizations boast about their low acceptance rates. The Harvard College Consulting Group declares itself the most selective pre-professional student group on Harvard's campus with an acceptance rate 
below 12%. The Crimson Key Society, which organizes Freshman Orientation Week and runs campus tours, also advertises its selectivity. Only 11.5% of applicants are accepted. We don't want to just put anyone in front of tourists, the society's comp director explains. But the need for talent seems less compelling than the impulse to reenact the trauma and the rush of meritocratic competition. You jump through this huge hoop of getting into Harvard, a first-year student told the Harvard Crimson, and you just want to jump through more to get this adrenaline going again. The rise of the comping culture illustrates the conversion of college into basic training for a competitive meritocracy, an education in packaging oneself and applying for stuff. This in turn reflects a broader shift in the role of colleges and universities. Their credentialing function now looms so large that it overwhelms their educational function. The sorting and striving crowd out teaching and learning. College deans and presidents abet this tendency by saying, as if self-effacingly, that students learn more outside their classes than in them. This could mean, and perhaps once meant, that students learn from their classmates through informal, ongoing discussion of questions that arise in their courses and readings. But increasingly, it refers to networking. Closely akin to the comping and networking is obsessing about grades. Although I cannot prove that students' preoccupation with grades has intensified in recent decades, it certainly feels that way. In 2012, in one of the largest Ivy League cheating scandals in memory, some 70 students had to withdraw from Harvard College for cheating on a take-home exam. In 2017, the college's Honors Council was deluged with cases of academic dishonesty as more than 60 students in an introductory computer science course were referred for possible cheating. But cheating is not the only manifestation of grade obsession. At one well-known law school, faculty members are instructed not to tell students when grades for the previous semester will be released. As experience has shown, that advance notice of this momentous event generates too much anxiety. The release of grades is now carefully timed to enable distressed students to seek the help of counseling services. Hubris and Humiliation When Conant set Harvard and higher education, the task of testing and sorting the American population I doubt he imagined the relentless meritocratic competition this project would unleash. Today, the role of colleges and universities as arbiters of opportunity is so entrenched that it is difficult to imagine alternatives, but the time has come to do so. 
Rethinking the role of higher education is important, not only to repair the damaged psyches of the privileged, but also to repair the polarized civic life that meritocratic sorting has produced. In seeking to dismantle the sorting machine that Conant set in motion, it is worth noticing that the regime of merit exerts its tyranny in two directions at once. Among those who land on top, it induces anxiety, a debilitating perfectionism, and a meritocratic hubris that struggles to conceal a fragile self-esteem. Among those it leaves behind, it imposes a demoralizing, even humiliating, sense of failure. These two tyrannies share a common moral source, the abiding meritocratic faith that we are, as individuals, wholly responsible for our fate. If we succeed, it is thanks to our own doing, and if we fail, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Inspiring though it seems, this strenuous notion of individual responsibility makes it hard to summon the sense of solidarity and mutual obligation that could equip us to contend with the rising inequality of our time. It would be a mistake to think that higher education is solely responsible for the inequalities of income and social esteem we witness today. The project of market-driven globalization, the technocratic turn of contemporary politics, and the oligarchic capture of democratic institutions are all complicit in this condition. But before turning in Chapter 7 to the vexed question of work in a globalized economy, it is worth considering what might be done to alleviate the harsh effects of meritocratic sorting and to do so from both directions, attending to the wounds it inflicts on those it picks out as winners, and to the indignities it inflicts on those it marks as losers. Consider first a modest proposal for reforming college admission, if only to illustrate how we might begin to ease the debilitating cycle of sorting and striving. A Lottery of the Qualified One approach to reform would seek to improve access to elite colleges by reducing reliance on the SAT and by eliminating preferences for legacies, athletes, and donor children. Although such reforms would make the system less unfair, they do not challenge the notion of higher education as a sorting project, whose role is to seek out talent and allocate opportunity and rewards to those who possess it. But the sorting project is the problem. Making it more truly meritocratic entrenches it more deeply. So consider this instead. Each year, more than 40,000 students apply for the roughly 2,000 places that Harvard and Stanford have to offer. 
Admissions officers tell us that a great many of those who apply are qualified to do the work at Harvard or Stanford and do it well. The same is presumably true at the dozens of selective colleges and universities that attract many more qualified applicants than they are able to accept. In 2017, 87 colleges and universities accepted fewer than 30% of applicants. As early as 1960, when the number of applicants was less daunting, a longtime member of Yale's admission committee was quoted as saying, you sometimes have the nasty feeling that you could take all the thousands of applicants and you could throw them down the stairs, pick up any thousand, and produce as good a class as the one that will come out of the committee meeting. My proposal takes that suggestion seriously. Of the 40,000 plus applicants, winnow out those who are unlikely to flourish at Harvard or Stanford, those who are not qualified to perform well and to contribute to the education of their fellow students. This would leave the admissions committee with, say, 30,000 qualified contenders or 25,000 or 20,000 rather than engage in the exceedingly difficult and uncertain task of trying to predict who among them are the most surpassingly meritorious, choose the entering class by lottery. In other words, toss the folders of the qualified applicants down the stairs, pick up 2,000 of them, and leave it at that. This proposal does not ignore merit altogether, only the qualified are admitted. But it treats merit as a threshold qualification, not an ideal to be maximized. This is sensible, first of all, on practical grounds. Even the wisest admissions officers cannot assess with exquisite precision which 18-year-olds will wind up making the most truly outstanding contributions, academic or otherwise. Although we valorize talent, it is, in the context of college admissions, a vague and watery concept. Perhaps it is possible to identify a math prodigy at an early age, but talent in general is a more complicated, less predictable thing. Consider how difficult it is to assess even more narrowly defined talents and skills. Nolan Ryan, one of the greatest pitchers in the history of baseball, holds the all-time record for most strikeouts and was elected on the first ballot to baseball's Hall of Fame. When he was 18 years old, he was not signed until the 12th round of the baseball draft. Teams chose 294 other seemingly more promising players before he was chosen. Tom Brady, one of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of football, was the 199th draft pick. If so circumscribed a talent as the ability to throw a baseball or a football is hard to predict with much certainty, it is folly to think that the ability to have a broad and significant impact on society or on some future field of endeavor 
can be predicted well enough to justify fine-grained rankings of promising high school seniors. But the most compelling reasons for a lottery of the qualified is to combat the tyranny of merit. Setting a threshold of qualification and letting chance decide the rest would restore some sanity to the high school years and relieve, at least to some extent, the soul-killing, resume-stuffing, perfection-seeking experience they have become. It would also deflate meritocratic hubris by making clear what is true in any case, that those who land on top do not make it on their own, but owe their good fortune to family circumstance and native gifts that are morally akin to the luck of the draw. I can imagine at least four objections. First, what about academic quality? That depends on setting the right threshold. I have a hunch that at least for the top 60 or 80 colleges and universities, the quality of classroom discussion and academic performance would not be noticeably different. My hunch could be wrong, but there is an easy way to find out. Begin with an experiment. Admit half the class using the existing system and half by a lottery of the qualified and then compare academic performance at the time of graduation and career success some years later. Stanford actually came close to trying this experiment in the late 1960s, but the plan was scuttled due to opposition by the Dean of Admissions. Second, what about diversity? In principle, the lottery could be adjusted to ensure diversity along any particular dimension a college deemed compelling by assigning each student in a favored category two lottery tickets or three. This could produce the desired diversity without giving up on the aspect of chance. One variation worth considering to counteract the hereditary tendency of meritocratic admissions as currently practiced, colleges could first admit a certain number of qualified applicants whose parents did not attend college and then run the lottery. Third, what about legacies and donor children? Ideally, colleges should stop giving preference to children of alumni. But for colleges that want to continue to do so, they could assign each alumni child two lottery tickets rather than one, as with diversity categories above, or more if the college deemed it necessary. It is worth noting that to replicate the current rate of legacy admissions, some schools would have to assign each alumni child five or six lottery tickets. This would at least make vivid the advantage they are conferring on privileged kids and perhaps prompt debate about whether such preferences should continue. Favoritism for children of big donors who are not alumni should also be eliminated. 
But if colleges cannot resist the financial benefit of selling some places in the entering class, they could simply set aside a handful of seats to be auctioned off or sold outright. This would be a more honest way of acknowledging the compromises some colleges currently make under cover of merit. As in the current system, the recipients of the bought places would not be publicly identified, but at least they would no longer be buying a bogus presumption of superior merit. Fourth, wouldn't admission by lottery render selectivity less meaningful and so erode the prestige of the top colleges and universities? Yes, perhaps. But is this really an objection? Only if you believe that the prestige-driven resorting of higher education in recent decades has improved the quality of teaching and learning. But this is highly doubtful. Drawing high-scoring students from a broader range of colleges across the country into a smaller circle of hyper-selective places has deepened inequality but done little, if anything, to improve education. The anxious striving and hoop-jumping that meritocratic sorting has induced has rendered students less open to the exploratory character of a liberal arts education. Scaling back the sorting and the prestige-mongering would be a virtue, not a drawback, of the lottery system. If a sizable number of elite colleges and universities began admitting qualified students by lottery, they would alleviate, at least to some degree, the stress of high school years. College-bound teenagers and their parents would realize that beyond demonstrating the ability to perform well in college-level courses, Students would no longer need to devote their adolescence to an arms race of activities and achievements designed to impress admissions committees. Helicopter parenting might recede to the benefit of the emotional well-being of parents and children alike, spared the scars of the battlefield of merit. Young people might arrive in college less prone to hoop jumping and more open to personal and intellectual exploration. These changes would ease the damage the tyranny of merit inflicts on the winners. But what about everyone else? Only about 20% of graduating high school seniors are swept up in the frenzy to get into prestigious colleges. What about the 80% who attend less competitive universities? or two-year community colleges, or none at all. For them, the tyranny of merit is not about a soul-killing competition for admission, but about a demoralizing world of work that offers meager economic rewards and scant social esteem to those who lack meritocratic credentials. Dismantling the sorting machine an adequate response requires an ambitious project. We should power down the meritocratic sorting machine by lowering the stakes of winning admission 
to highly selective colleges and universities. More broadly, we should figure out how to make success in life less dependent on having a four-year college degree. Any attempt to honor work must begin by taking seriously the various forms of learning and training that prepare people to undertake it. This means reversing the retreat from public higher education, overcoming the neglect of technical and vocational education, and breaking down the sharp distinction in funding and prestige between four-year colleges and other post-secondary educational settings. One impediment to reducing meritocratic sorting in higher education is that in the United States at least, much of it is carried out by private colleges and universities. Nevertheless, these institutions, private though they are, rely on substantial federal funding, especially for student financial aid and federally sponsored research. In some cases, they hold vast endowments, which generate income that is traditionally tax-exempt. The Republican Tax Bill of 2017 imposed a tax on the endowment income of a small number of wealthy colleges. In principle, the federal government could use this leverage to require private colleges and universities to expand enrollment, admit more students from disadvantaged backgrounds, or even to adopt some version of the admissions lottery proposal. It is unlikely, however, that such measures would by themselves lower the stakes of getting in to at least one selective college. Of greater significance would be measures to broaden access to four-year public colleges and universities and to devote greater support to community colleges, technical and vocational education, and job training. These are, after all, the educational settings in which the majority of Americans learn the skills they need to make a decent living. Government funding for state colleges and universities has fallen in recent decades, and tuition has increased to the point where the public character of these institutions is in doubt. In 1987, public colleges received three times more revenue per student from state and local governments than from tuition. But as government funding fell, tuition rose. By 2013, public higher education derived as much of its revenue from tuition as from state and local support. Many leading public universities are now public in name only. At the University of Wisconsin-Madison, for example, only 14% of the budget comes from state appropriations. At the University of Virginia, state funding accounts for just 10% of the budget. At the University of Texas at Austin, state appropriations provided 47% of the budget in the mid-1980s. Today, only 11%. Meanwhile, the share from tuition increased more than fourfold. As public support recedes and tuition rises, student debt 
has skyrocketed. Today's generation of students set out on their careers, burdened by a mountain of debt. Over the past 15 years, the total amount of student loan debt increased more than fivefold. By 2020, it exceeded $1.5 trillion. The most glaring indication of the meritocratic tilt in college finance is the gap between federal support for higher education and support for technical and vocational training. Isabel Sawhill, an economist at the Brookings Institution, offers a striking account of the disparity. Contrast the small amount being spent on employment and training, she writes, with the amount spent on higher education in the form of grants, loans, and tax credits for the academic year 2014 to 15. A total of $162 billion was spent to help people go to college. In contrast, the Department of Education spends about $1.1 billion annually on career and technical education. Sawhill adds that even combining career and technical education funding with expenditures to help displaced workers find new jobs, we are only spending about $20 billion per year on these work-related programs at the federal level. The amount the U.S. spends on training or retraining workers is not only small compared with the amount we spend on higher education, it is also minuscule compared with the amounts other countries spend. Economists speak of active labor market policies to describe government programs that help equip workers with the skills the job market needs. Such policies respond to the fact that the labor market doesn't work smoothly on its own. Training and placement programs are often needed to help workers find jobs suited to their skills. Sawhill points out that economically advanced countries spend an average of half a percent of GDP on active labor market programs. France, Finland, Sweden, and Denmark spend more than 1% of GDP on such programs. The U.S. spends only about one-tenth of 1%, less than we spend on prisons. The American indifference to active labor market policies may reflect the market faith that supply and demand, in this case for labor, automatically align without outside help. But it also reflects the meritocratic conviction that higher education is the primary avenue to opportunity. One reason the United States may have neglected employment and training, Sawhill writes, is because the emphasis has been on financing higher education. The assumption seems to be that everyone needs to go to college. But as we have seen, only about one-third of Americans earn a bachelor's degree. For everyone else, access to a well-paying job depends on forms of education and training 
that we woefully neglect. Despite its aspirational appeal, the meritocratic insistence that a four-year college degree is the gateway to success distracts us from taking seriously the educational needs of most people. This neglect not only hurts the economy, it expresses a lack of respect for the kind of work the working class does. The Hierarchy of Esteem Repairing the damage the sorting machine inflicts requires more than increased funding for job training. It requires us to rethink the way we value different kinds of work. One way to begin is by dismantling the hierarchy of esteem that accords greater honor and prestige to students enrolled in name-brand colleges and universities than to those in community colleges or in technical and vocational training programs. Learning to become a plumber or electrician or dental hygienist should be respected as a valuable contribution to the common good, not regarded as a consolation prize for those who lack the SAT scores or financial means to make it to the Ivy League. Higher education derives much of its prestige from its avowedly higher purpose, not only to equip students for the world of work, but also to prepare them to be morally reflective human beings and effective democratic citizens capable of deliberating about the common good. Having spent a career teaching moral and political philosophy, I certainly believe in the importance of moral and civic education. But why assume that four-year colleges and universities have, or should have, a monopoly on this mission? A more capacious notion of educating citizens for democracy would resist the sequestration of civic education in universities. It should be acknowledged, first of all, that elite colleges and universities are not doing very well at this task. For the most part, they place relatively little curricular emphasis on moral and civic education or on the kind of historical studies that prepare students to exercise informed practical judgment about public affairs. The growing prominence of supposedly value-neutral social science, together with the proliferation of narrow, highly specialized courses, has left little room for courses that expose students to big questions of moral and political philosophy and invite them to reflect critically on their moral and political convictions. There are exceptions, of course, and many colleges and universities require students to take some course or other that deals with ethical or civic themes. But for the most part, our leading colleges and universities today are better at inculcating technocratic skills and orientations than the ability to reason and deliberate about fundamental moral and civic questions. This technocratic emphasis may have contributed 
to the failure of governing elites over the past two generations and to the morally impoverished terms of public discourse. But even if my assessment of the state of moral and civic education at elite colleges is too harsh, there is no reason why four-year colleges should be the sole setting for courses in moral reasoning and civic argument. Civic education out of doors, so to speak, has a long tradition. An inspiring example is the demand made by the Knights of Labor, one of America's first major labor unions, for reading rooms in factories so that workers could inform themselves about public affairs. This demand grew out of a Republican tradition that viewed civic learning as embedded in the world of work. As the cultural historian Christopher Lash observed, foreign visitors to America in the 19th century were struck by its broad equality of condition. By this they meant neither an equal distribution of wealth, nor even the opportunity to rise, but rather an independence of mind and judgment that put all citizens on a roughly equal footing. Lash writes, Citizenship appeared to have given even the humbler members of society access to the knowledge and cultivation elsewhere reserved for the privileged classes. Labor's contribution to the general well-being took the form of mind as well as muscle. American mechanics, it was said, are not untaught operatives, but an enlightened, reflective people who not only know how to use their hands, but are familiar with principles. Mechanics magazines return to this theme again and again. Lash makes the broader point that the egalitarian character of American society in the 19th century was less about social mobility than the general diffusion of intelligence and learning across all classes and vocations. This is the kind of equality that meritocratic sorting destroys. It seeks to concentrate intelligence and learning in the citadel of higher education and promises access to the citadel through a fair competition. But this way of allocating access to learning undermines the dignity of labor and corrupts the common good. Civic education can flourish in community colleges, job training sites, and union halls, as well as on ivy-strewn campuses. There is no reason to suppose that aspiring nurses and plumbers are less suited to the art of democratic argument than aspiring management consultants. Chastening merits hubris. The most potent rival to merit to the notion that we are responsible for our lot and deserve what we get is the notion that our fate exceeds our control, that we are indebted for our success and also for our troubles to the grace of God or the vagaries of fortune 
or the luck of the draw. The Puritans found, as we saw in chapter 2, that a thoroughgoing ethic of grace is almost impossible to sustain. The Puritans found, as we saw in chapter 2, that a thoroughgoing ethic of grace is almost impossible to sustain, living by the belief that we have no hand in whether we will be saved in the next world or successful in this one is hard to reconcile with the idea of freedom and with the conviction that we get what we deserve. This is why merit tends to drive out grace. Sooner or later, the successful assert and come to believe that their success is their own doing and that those who lose out are less worthy than they. But even in its triumph, the meritocratic faith does not deliver the self-mastery it promises, nor does it provide a basis for solidarity. Ungenerous to the losers and oppressive to the winners, merit becomes a tyrant. And when it does, we can enlist its ancient rival to rein it in. This is what, in one small domain of life, the admissions lottery tries to do. It summons chance to chasten merit's hubris. Reflecting on the tyranny that merit inflicts on affluent, competitive kids brings to mind two experiences from my own teenage years. The mania for sorting and tracking filtered down into the public junior high school and high school I attended in Pacific Palisades, California in the late 1960s. So heavily tracked were these schools that despite the fact that some 2,300 students attended my high school, I found myself constantly in the company of the same 30 or 40 kids in the top track. My eighth grade math teacher took tracking to an extreme. The class may have been algebra or geometry, I don't remember which, but I do remember the seating arrangement. Three of the six rows were so-called honors rows in which students were seated in precise order of their grade point average. This meant that seating assignments changed with each test or quiz. To heighten the drama, the teacher announced the new seating arrangement before handing back each graded exercise. I was good in math, but not the best. I typically shuttled between the second desk and the fourth or fifth. A girl named Kay, a math whiz, almost always occupied the first desk. As a 14-year-old kid, I thought this was how school worked. The better you did, the higher you were ranked. Everyone knew who the best math students were and who had triumphed or bombed on this or that quiz. Although I didn't realize it at the time, this was my first encounter with meritocracy. By the time we reached 
10th grade, the tracking and ranking was taking its toll. Most of the top track students had become obsessed with grades, not only our own, but everyone else's too. We were intensely competitive, so much so that our preoccupation with grades threatened to swamp our intellectual curiosity. My 10th grade biology teacher, Mr. Farnham, a wry bow-tied man whose classroom teemed with snakes, salamanders, fish, mice, and other fascinating wildlife, found this troubling. One day he gave us a pop quiz. He told us to take out a piece of paper, number from 1 to 15, and answer true or false. When students complained that he had not given us any questions, he told us to think of a statement for each question and write down whether it was true or false. Students asked anxiously whether this arbitrary quiz would be graded and whether it would count. Yes, of course, he said. At the time, I found this an amusing, if eccentric, classroom joke. But in retrospect, I see that Mr. Farnham was trying, in his way, to push back against the tyranny of merit. He was trying to get us to step back from the sorting and the striving long enough to marvel at the salamanders. Seven, recognizing work. From the end of World War II to the 1970s, it was possible for those without a college degree to find good work, support a family, and lead a comfortable middle-class life. This is far more difficult today. Over the past four decades, the earnings difference between college and high school graduates what economists call the college premium, has doubled. In 1979, college graduates made about 40% more than high school graduates. By the 2000s, they made 80% more. Although the age of globalization brought rich rewards to the well-credentialed, it did nothing for most ordinary workers. From 1975 to 2016, the number of manufacturing jobs in the United States fell from 19.5 million to 12 million. Productivity increased, but workers reaped a smaller and smaller share of what they produced, while executives and shareholders captured a larger share. In the late 1970s, CEOs of major American companies made 30 times more than the average worker. By 2014, they made 300 times more. The median income of American males has been stagnant in real terms for half a century. Although per capita income has increased 85% since 1979, white men without a four-year college degree make less now in real terms than they did then. 
eroding the dignity of work. It is not surprising that they are unhappy, but economic hardship is not the only source of their distress. The meritocratic age has also inflicted a more insidious injury on working people, eroding the dignity of work. By valorizing the so-called brains it takes to score well on college admissions tests, the sorting machine disparages those without meritocratic credentials. It tells them that the work they do, less valued by the market than the work of well-paid professionals, is a lesser contribution to the common good, and so less worthy of social recognition and esteem. It legitimates the lavish rewards the market bestows on the winners and the meager pay it offers workers without a college degree. This way of thinking about who deserves what is not morally defensible. For reasons we explored earlier, it is a mistake to assume that the market value of this or that job is the measure of its contribution to the common good. Recall the richly compensated mess dealer and the modestly paid high school teacher. But over the last several decades, the idea that the money we make reflects the value of our social contribution has become deeply embedded. It echoes throughout the public culture. Meritocratic sorting helped entrench this idea. So did the neoliberal or market-oriented version of globalization embraced by mainstream parties of the center-right and center-left since the 1980s, even as globalization produced massive inequality. These two outlooks, the meritocratic and the neoliberal, narrowed the grounds for resisting it. They also undermined the dignity of work, fueling resentment of elites and political backlash. Since 2016, pundits and scholars have debated the source of populist discontent. Is it about job loss and stagnant wages or cultural displacement? But this distinction is too sharply drawn. Work is both economic and cultural. It is a way of making a living and also a source of social recognition and esteem. This is why the inequality brought about by globalization produced such anger and resentment. Those left behind by globalization not only struggled while others prospered, they also sensed that the work they did was no longer a source of social esteem. In society's eyes, and perhaps also their own, their work no longer signified a valued contribution to the common good. Working class men without a college degree voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. Their attraction to his politics of grievance and resentment suggests that they were distressed by more than economic hardship alone. 
so does an expression of futility that was mounting in the years leading up to Trump's election. As the circumstances of work for those without meritocratic credentials became bleak, growing numbers of working-age men dropped out of the labor force altogether. In 1971, 93% of white working-class men were employed. By 2016, only 80% were. Of the 20% who did not have jobs, only a small fraction of them were looking for work, as if defeated by the indignities of a labor market indifferent to their skills. Most had simply given up. The abandonment of work was especially acute among those who had not been to college. Of Americans, whose highest academic qualification was a high school diploma, only 68% were employed in 2017. Deaths of despair. But giving up on work was not the most grievous expression of the damaged morale of working-class Americans. Many were giving up on life itself. The most tragic indication is the increase in deaths of despair. The term was coined by Anne Case and Angus Deaton, two Princeton economists who recently made a disquieting discovery. Throughout the 20th century, as modern medicine pushed back disease, life expectancy steadily increased. But from 2014 to 2017, it stalled and even declined. For the first time in a century, life expectancy in the United States decreased for three straight years. This was not because medical science stopped finding new cures and treatments for disease. Mortality rates were going up, Case and Deaton found, due to an epidemic of deaths caused by suicides, drug overdoses, and alcoholic liver disease. They called them deaths of despair because they were, in various ways, self-inflicted. Such deaths, which had been mounting for more than a decade, were especially frequent among white adults in middle age. For white men and women aged 45 to 54, deaths of despair increased threefold from 1990 to 2017. By 2014, for the first time, more people in this group were dying of drugs, alcohol, and suicide than from heart disease. Among those who live at some distance from working class communities, the crisis was barely noticed at first, the scale of loss obscured by the lack of public attention. But by 2016, more Americans were dying each year from drug overdose than died during the entire Vietnam War. The New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof offers another stark comparison. More Americans now die deaths of despair every two weeks than died 
during 18 years of war in Afghanistan and Iraq. What might account for this grim epidemic? A telling clue can be found in the educational background of those most vulnerable to it. Case and Deaton discovered that the increase in deaths of despair was almost all among those without a bachelor's degree. Those with a four-year degree are mostly exempt. It is those without a degree who are most at risk. The overall death rate for white men and women in middle ages has not changed much over the past two decades, but mortality varies greatly by education. Since the 1990s, death rates for college graduates declined by 40%. For those without a college degree, they rose by 25%. Here then is another advantage of the well-credentialed. If you have a bachelor's degree, your risk of dying in middle age is only one quarter of the risk facing those without a college diploma. Deaths of despair account for much of this difference. People with less education have long been at greater risk than those with college degrees of dying from alcohol, drugs, or suicide. But the diploma divide in death has become increasingly stark. By 2017, men without a bachelor's degree were three times more likely than college graduates to die deaths of despair. It might be thought that the underlying cause is unhappiness born of poverty and that educational differences figure only because those with lesser educations are likely to be poor. Case and Deaton consider this possibility, but find it unpersuasive. The dramatic increase in deaths of despair from 1999 to 2017 does not correspond to a general increase in poverty. They also looked state by state and found no convincing correlation between deaths by suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol, and rising poverty levels. Something more than material deprivation was inciting the despair, something distinctive to the plight of people struggling to make their way in a meritocratic society without the credentials it honors and rewards. The deaths of despair, Case and Deaton conclude, reflect a long-term and slowly unfolding loss of a way of life for the white, less educated working class. The widening gap between those with and those without a degree is not only in death, but also in the quality of life, they write. Those without a degree are seeing increases in their levels of pain, ill health, and serious mental distress, and declines in their ability to work and to socialize. The gap is also widening in earnings, in family stability, and in community. A four-year degree 
has become the key marker of social status, as if there were a requirement for non-graduates to wear a circular scarlet badge bearing the letters BA crossed through by a diagonal red line. This condition sadly vindicates Michael Young's observation that in a society that makes so much of merit, it is hard to be judged as having none. No underclass has ever been left as morally naked as that. It is also eerily reminiscent of John Gardner's argument for excellence and educational sorting in the early 1960s. In acknowledging meritocracy's downside, he was more prescient than he knew. Those who, quote, saw the beauty of a system in which every young person could go as far as his ability and ambition would take him, easily overlooked the pain involved for those who lacked the necessary ability, Gardner wrote. Yet pain there is and must be. Two generations later, when OxyContin was the drug that dulled the pain, the rising tide of death revealed a dark consequence of meritocratic sorting, a world of work that accords little dignity to those who have been sorted out. Sources of Resentment During the Republican primaries of 2016, Donald Trump, then an insurgent candidate running against the establishment, did best in places that had the highest rates of deaths of despair. A county-by-county -county electoral analysis found that even controlling for income, the death rate among middle-aged whites was strongly correlated with support for Trump. So was the lack of a bachelor's degree. One of the reasons mainstream pundits and politicians were shocked and perplexed by Trump's election is that they were oblivious to, and in some cases complicit in, the culture of elite condescension that had been building for some time. This culture arose in large part from the meritocratic sorting project and the inequality brought about by market-driven globalization. But it finds expression throughout American life. The working-class fathers on television sitcoms, such as Archie Bunker in All in the Family and Homer Simpson in The Simpsons, are mostly buffoons. Media scholars have found that television's blue-collar dads are depicted as ineffectual and dumb, the butt of jokes, often dominated by their more competent and sensible wives. Fathers from upper middle class and professional backgrounds are more favorably portrayed. Elite disparagement of the working class can be heard in common parlance. Joan Williams, a professor at Hastings College of Law in San Francisco, has criticized progressives for what she calls their class cluelessness. Too often in otherwise polite society, elites, progressives emphatically included, unselfconsciously belittle working class whites 
she writes. We hear talk of trailer trash in flyover states afflicted by plumber's butt, open class insults that pass for wit. This condescension affects political campaigns, as in Hillary Clinton's comment about deplorables and Barack Obama's about people who cling to guns or religion. Williams acknowledges that economic resentment has fueled racial anxiety, that in some Trump supporters, and Trump himself, bleeds into open racism. But to write off white working-class anger as nothing more than racism is intellectual comfort food, she writes, and it is dangerous. Barbara Ehrenreich, a journalist who writes about work and class, makes a similar observation. She quotes W.E.B. Du Bois, writing in 1935, It must be remembered that the white group of laborers, while they received a low wage, were compensated in part by a sort of public and psychological wage. Unlike African Americans, white working class citizens were, quote, admitted freely with all classes of white people to public functions, public parks, and the best public schools. This public and psychological wage is what today goes by the name of white privilege. After the civil rights movement, the racial segregation that upheld this perverse psychological wage subsidy fell away, Aaron Wright suggests, leaving poor whites without the comfort of knowing that someone was worse off and more despised than they were. Liberal elites who feel righteous in their disgust for lower-class white racism are right to condemn the racism, but they fail to see how attributing white privilege to disempowered white working-class men and women is galling. It ignores their struggle to win honor and recognition in a meritocratic order that has scant regard for the skills they have to offer. Catherine J. Kramer, a political scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, spent five years interviewing people in rural communities across Wisconsin and emerged with a nuanced account of the politics of resentment. Residents of rural communities believed that too much tax money and government attention went to undeserving people undeserving included racial minorities on welfare, Kramer wrote, but it also included lazy urban professionals like me, working desk jobs and producing nothing more than ideas. Racism is part of their resentment, she explained, but it is intertwined with a more basic concern that people like them in places like theirs were overlooked and disrespected. In one of the most compelling chronicles of working-class discontent, Arlie Russell Hochschild, a sociologist at the University of California, Berkeley, embedded herself in Louisiana Bayou country in kitchen table conversations with conservative Southern working people. She sought to understand why those who stood in desperate need of government help 
not least to contend with the oil and chemical companies that brought environmental disaster to their communities. Nonetheless, despised and distrusted the federal government. She composed a story, an interpretive reconstruction of what she learned, describing the hopes, fears, pride, shame, resentment, and anxiety in the lives of those she talked with. Her story was an interwoven tale of economic deprivation and cultural dislocation. Economic progress had become harder, restricted to a small elite. For the bottom 90%, the American dream machine had stopped due to automation, offshoring, and the growing power of multinationals vis-a-vis their workforces. At the same time, for that 90%, competition between white men and everyone else had increased for jobs, for recognition, and for government funds to make matters worse. Those who believed they had been waiting patiently in line for their chance at the American dream found that other people were cutting in line ahead of them. Blacks, women, immigrants, refugees. They resented the people they viewed as line cutters, the beneficiaries of affirmative action, for example, and were angry at the political leaders who allowed them to get away with it. When those waiting their turn complained about the line cutters, elites called them racists, rednecks, white trash, and other insulting names. Hochschild offers this sympathetic account of the predicament confronting her beleaguered working-class hosts. You are a stranger in your own land. You do not recognize yourself in how others see you. It is a struggle to feel seen and honored. And to feel honored, you have to feel and feel seen as moving ahead. But through no fault of your own, and in ways that are hidden, you are slipping backward. Any serious response to working-class frustrations must combat the elite condescension and credentialist prejudice that have become rife in the public culture. It must also put the dignity of work at the center of the political agenda. This is not as easy as it may seem. People of various ideological persuasions will hold competing notions about what it means for a society to respect the dignity of work, especially at a time when globalization and technology, with their seemingly inevitable bent, threaten to undermine it. But the way a society honors and rewards work is central to the way it defines the common good. Thinking through the meaning of work would force us to confront moral and political questions we otherwise evade, but that lurk unaddressed beneath the surface of our present discontents. What counts as a valuable contribution to the common good? And what do we owe one another as citizens? Renewing 
the dignity of work. As inequality increased in recent years, and as working-class resentment gathered force, some politicians responded by speaking of the dignity of work. Bill Clinton used the term more than any previous president, and Donald Trump refers to it frequently. It has become a popular rhetorical gesture for politicians across the political spectrum, though mainly in the service of familiar political positions. Some conservatives argue that cutting welfare honors the dignity of work by making life harder for the idle and weaning them from dependence on government. Trump's Secretary of Agriculture claimed that reducing access to food stamps, quote, restores the dignity of work to a sizable segment of our population. Defending a 2017 bill that cut taxes for corporations and mainly benefited the wealthy, Trump stated that his goal was, quote, for every American to know the dignity of work, the pride of a paycheck. For their part, liberals sometimes appeal to the dignity of work in seeking to strengthen the safety net and boost the purchasing power of working people, raising the minimum wage, offering policies for health care, family leave, and child care, and providing a tax credit for low-income families. But this rhetoric, backed by these substantial policy proposals, failed to address the working-class anger and resentment that led to Trump's 2016 victory. Many liberals found this puzzling. How could so many people who stood to benefit economically from these measures vote for a candidate who opposed them? One familiar answer is that white working-class voters, swayed by fear of cultural displacement, overlooked or overrode their economic interests to vote with their middle finger, as some commentators put it. But this explanation is too quick. It draws too sharp a distinction between economic interests and cultural status. Economic concerns are not only about money in one's pocket. They are also about how one's role in the economy affects one's standing in society. Those left behind by four decades of globalization and rising inequality were suffering from more than wage stagnation. They were experiencing what they feared was growing obsolescence. The society in which they lived no longer seemed to need the skills they had to offer. Robert F. Kennedy, seeking his party's nomination for president in 1968, understood this. The pain of unemployment was not simply that the jobless lacked an income, but that they were deprived of the opportunity to contribute to the common good. Unemployment means having nothing to do, which means having nothing to do with the rest of us, he explained. To be without work, to be without use to one's fellow citizens, is to be, in truth, the invisible man of whom Ralph Ellison wrote. What Kennedy glimpsed 
about the discontent of his time is what contemporary liberals miss about ours. They have been offering working class and middle class voters a greater measure of distributive justice, fairer, fuller access to the fruits of economic growth. But what these voters want even more is a greater measure of contributive justice, an opportunity to win the social recognition and esteem that goes with producing what others need and value. The liberal emphasis on distributive justice rightly offers a counterweight to a single-minded focus on maximizing GDP. It arises from the conviction that a just society aims not only to maximize the overall level of prosperity, it also seeks a fair distribution of income and wealth. According to this view, policies expected to increase GDP, such as free trade agreements, or policies that encourage companies to outsource labor to low-wage countries, can only be defended if the winners compensate the losers. For example, the increased profits of companies and individuals who gain from globalization could be taxed to strengthen the social safety net and to provide income support or job retraining for displaced workers. This approach has informed the thinking of mainstream center-left and some center-right parties in the United States and Europe since the 1980s. Embrace globalization and the increased prosperity it brings, but use the gains to offset the loss that domestic workers suffer as a result. The populist protest amounts to a renunciation of this project. Looking back across the wreckage, we can see why this project failed. First of all, it was never really implemented. Economic growth occurred, but the winners did not compensate the losers. Instead, neoliberal globalization brought an unabated increase in inequality. Instead, neoliberal globalization brought an unabated increase in inequality. Almost all of the gains of economic growth went to those at the top, and most working people saw little or no improvement, even after taxes. The redistributive aspect of the project fell by the wayside, due in part to the growing power of money in politics, what some call the oligarchic capture of democratic institutions. But there was a further problem. The focus on maximizing GDP, even if accompanied by help for those left behind, puts the emphasis on consumption rather than production. It invites us to think of ourselves more as consumers than as producers. In practice, of course, we are both. As consumers, we want to get the most for our money to buy goods and services as cheaply as possible, whether they are made by low-wage workers overseas or well-paid American workers. As producers, 
We want satisfying and remunerative work. It falls to politics to reconcile our identities as consumers and as producers. But the globalization project sought to maximize economic growth and hence the welfare of consumers with little regard for the effect of outsourcing, immigration, and financialization on the well-being of producers. The elites who presided over globalization not only failed to address the inequality it generated, they also failed to appreciate its corrosive effect on the dignity of work. Work as recognition. Policy proposals to compensate for inequality by increasing the purchasing power of working and middle-class families or to shore up the safety net will do little to address the anger and resentment that now run deep. This is because the anger is about the loss of recognition and esteem. While diminished purchasing power certainly matters, the injury that most animates the resentment of working people is to their status as producers. This injury is the combined effect of meritocratic sorting and market-driven globalization. Only a political agenda that acknowledges this injury and seeks to renew the dignity of work can speak effectively to the discontent that roils our politics. Such an agenda must attend to contributive as well as distributive justice. This is because the anger abroad in the land is, at least in part, a crisis of recognition. And it is in our role as producers, not consumers, that we contribute to the common good and win recognition for doing so. The contrast between consumer and producer identities points to two different ways of understanding the common good. One approach, familiar among economic policymakers, defines the common good as the sum of everyone's preferences and interests. According to this account, we achieve the common good by maximizing consumer welfare, typically by maximizing economic growth. If the common good is simply a matter of satisfying consumer preferences, then market wages are a good measure of who has contributed what. Those who make the most money have presumably made the most valuable contribution to the common good by producing the goods and services that consumers want. A second approach rejects this consumerist notion of the common good in favor of what might be called a civic conception. According to the civic ideal, the common good is not simply about adding up preferences or maximizing consumer welfare. It is about reflecting critically on our preferences. 
ideally, elevating and improving them so that we can live worthwhile and flourishing lives. This cannot be achieved through economic activity alone. It requires deliberating with our fellow citizens about how to bring about a just and good society, one that cultivates civic virtue and enables us to reason together about the purposes worthy of our political community. The civic conception of the common good requires then a certain kind of politics, one that provides venues and occasions for public deliberation. But it also suggests a certain way of thinking about work. From the standpoint of the civic conception, the most important role we play in the economy is not as consumers, but as producers. For it is as producers that we develop and exercise our abilities to provide goods and services that fulfill the needs of our fellow citizens and win social esteem. The true value of our contribution cannot be measured by the wage we receive, for wages depend, as the economist philosopher Frank Knight pointed out, on contingencies of supply and demand. The value of our contribution depends instead on the moral and civic importance of the ends our efforts serve. This involves an independent moral judgment that the labor market, however efficient, cannot provide. The notion that economic policy is ultimately for the sake of consumption is today so familiar that it is hard to think our way beyond it. Consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production, Adam Smith declared in The Wealth of Nations, and the interest of the producer ought to be attended to only so far as it may be necessary for promoting that of the consumer. John Maynard Keynes echoed Smith, proclaiming that consumption is the sole end and object of all economic activity. And most contemporary economists agree. But an older tradition of moral and political thought held otherwise. Aristotle argued that human flourishing depends on realizing our nature through the cultivation and exercise of our abilities. The American Republican tradition taught that certain occupations, first agriculture, then artisan labor, then free labor broadly understood, cultivate the virtues that equip citizens for self-rule. In the 20th century, the producer ethic of the Republican tradition gradually gave way to consumerist notions of freedom and to a political economy of economic growth. But the idea that even in a complex society, work draws citizens together in a scheme of contribution and mutual recognition did not disappear altogether. At times, it has found inspiring expression. 
speaking to striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, shortly before he was assassinated, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. tied the dignity of sanitation workers to their contribution to the common good. One day our society will come to respect the sanitation workers if it is to survive, King said. For the person who picks up our garbage is in the final analysis as significant as the physician. For if he doesn't do his job, diseases are rampant. All labor has dignity. In a 1981 encyclical letter called On Human Work, Pope John Paul II stated that through work, man achieves fulfillment as a human being, and indeed, in a sense, becomes more a human being. He also saw work as bound up with community. Quote, This brings it about that man combines his deepest human identity with membership of a nation and intends his work also to increase the common good developed together with his compatriots. A few years later, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops issued a pastoral letter elaborating Catholic social teaching on the economy, giving explicit definition to contributive justice. All persons have an obligation to be active and productive participants in the life of society, and government has, quote, a duty to organize economic and social institutions so that people can contribute to society in ways that respect their freedom and the dignity of their labor. Some secular philosophers voice similar views. The German social theorist Axel Hanna has argued that contemporary conflicts over the distribution of income and wealth can best be understood as conflicts over recognition and esteem. Although he traces this idea to the philosophy of Hegel, a notoriously difficult thinker, it is intuitively plausible to any sports fan who has followed salary disputes involving highly paid athletes. When fans complain about a player who already makes millions but is holding out for more, the athlete invariably replies, it's not about the money, it's about respect. This is what Hegel means by the struggle for recognition more than a system for satisfying needs efficiently. The labor market, according to Hegel, is a system of recognition. It not only remunerates work with an income, but publicly recognizes each person's work as a contribution to the common good. Markets by themselves do not provide workers with skills or confer recognition. So Hegel proposed an institution akin to trade associations or guilds to ensure that workers' skills were adequate to make contributions seen as worthy of public esteem. In short, Hegel argued that the capitalist organization of work emerging in his time could be ethically justified 
only on two conditions, described succinctly by Hanna. First, it must provide a minimum wage. Second, it must give all work activities a shape that reveals them to be a contribution to the common good. Eighty years later, the French social theorist Emile Durkheim built on Hegel's account of work, arguing that the division of labor can be a source of social solidarity, provided everyone's contribution is remunerated according to its real value for the community. Unlike Smith, Keynes, and many present-day economists, Hegel and Durkheim did not see work mainly as a means to the end of consumption. Instead, they argued that work at its best is a socially integrating activity, an arena of recognition, a way of honoring our obligation to contribute to the common good. Contributive Justice in our deeply polarized time, when large numbers of working people feel ignored and unappreciated, when we desperately need sources of social cohesion and solidarity, it might seem that these more robust notions of the dignity of work would find their way into mainstream political argument. But this has not been the case. Why not? Why is the reigning political agenda resistant to the contributive aspect of justice and to the producer-centered ethic that underlies it? The answer might seem simply to lie in our love of consumption, along with the belief that economic growth delivers the goods. But something deeper is at stake. Beyond the material benefits it promises, Making economic growth an overriding aim of public policy has a special appeal for pluralist societies like ours that are teeming with disagreement. It seems to spare us the need for contentious debates about morally controversial questions. People hold various views about what is important in life, we disagree about the meaning of human flourishing. As consumers, we differ in our preferences and desires. In the face of these differences, maximizing consumer welfare seems a value-neutral goal for economic policy. If consumer welfare is the goal, then notwithstanding our disparate preferences, more is better than less. Disagreements inevitably arise about how to distribute the fruits of economic growth, hence the need for debates about distributive justice. But all can agree, or so it would seem, that expanding the economic pie is better than shrinking it. Contributive justice, by contrast, is not neutral about human flourishing or the best way to live. From Aristotle to the American Republican tradition, from Hegel 
to Catholic social teaching. Theories of contributive justice teach us that we are most fully human when we contribute to the common good and earn the esteem of our fellow citizens for the contributions we make. According to this tradition, the fundamental human need is to be needed by those with whom we share a common life. The dignity of work consists in exercising our abilities to answer such needs. If this is what it means to live a good life, then it is a mistake to conceive consumption as the sole end and object of economic activity. A political economy concerned only with the size and distribution of GDP undermines the dignity of work and makes for an impoverished civic life. Robert F. Kennedy understood this. Fellowship, community, shared patriotism, these essential values of our civilization do not come from just buying and consuming goods together, he said. They come instead from dignified employment at decent pay, the kind of employment that lets a man say to his community, to his family, to his country, and most important to himself, I helped to build this country. I am a participant in its great public ventures. Few politicians speak that way today. In the decades after RFK, progressives largely abandoned the politics of community, patriotism, and the dignity of work, and offered instead the rhetoric of rising. To those who worried about stagnant wages, outsourcing, inequality, and the fear that immigrants and robots were coming for their jobs, governing elites offered bracing advice. Go to college. Equip yourself to compete and win in the global economy. What you earn will depend on what you can learn. You can make it if you try. This was an idealism suited to a global, meritocratic, market-driven age. It flattered the winners and insulted the losers. By 2016, its time was up. The arrival of Brexit and Trump and the rise of hyper-nationalist anti-immigrant parties in Europe announced the failure of the project. The question now is what an alternative political project might look like. Debating the Dignity of Work The dignity of work is a good place to start. On the surface, it is hardly a controversial idea. No politician speaks against it. But a political agenda that takes work seriously, that treats it as an arena of recognition, would raise uncomfortable questions for mainstream liberals and conservatives alike. This is because it would challenge a premise that proponents of market-based globalization widely share, that market outcomes reflect the true social value of people's contributions to the common good. 
Thinking about pay, most would agree that what people make for this or that job often overstates or understates the true social value of the work they do. Only an ardent libertarian would insist that the wealthy casino magnate's contribution to society is a thousand times more valuable than that of a pediatrician. The pandemic of 2020 prompted many to reflect, at least fleetingly, on the importance of the work performed by grocery store clerks, delivery workers, home care providers, and other essential but modestly paid workers. In a market society, however, it is hard to resist the tendency to confuse the money we make with the value of our contribution to the common good. This confusion is not merely the result of sloppy thinking. It is not put to rest by philosophical arguments revealing its flaws. It reflects the allure of the meritocratic hope that the world is arranged in a way that aligns what we receive with what we are due. This is the hope that has fueled providentialist thinking from the Old Testament to present-day talk of being on the right side of history. In market-driven societies, interpreting material success as a sign of moral desert is a persisting temptation. It is a temptation we need repeatedly to resist. One way of doing so is to debate and enact measures that prompt us to reflect deliberately and democratically on what counts as truly valuable contributions to the common good and where market verdicts miss the mark. It would be unrealistic to expect that such a debate would produce agreement. The common good is inescapably contestable, but a renewed debate about the dignity of work would disrupt our partisan complacencies, morally invigorate our public discourse, and move us beyond the polarized politics that four decades of market faith and meritocratic hubris have bequeathed. Consider as illustrations two versions of a political agenda focused on the dignity of work and the need to challenge market outcomes to affirm it. One comes from a conservative direction, the other from a progressive one. The hubris of the open agenda. The first comes from a young conservative thinker who once worked as a policy advisor to Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney. In an insightful book, The Once and Future Worker, Oren Cass offers a series of proposals that address the grievances Trump tapped but failed to resolve. Cass argues that the renewal of work in the United States requires Republicans to give up their orthodox embrace of free markets. Rather than push corporate tax cuts and unfettered free trade in hopes of boosting GDP, 
Republicans should focus on policies that enable workers to find jobs that pay well enough to support strong families and communities. This matters more for a good society, Cass maintains, than economic growth. One of the policies he proposes to achieve this goal is a wage subsidy for low-income workers. Hardly standard Republican fare. The idea is that the government would provide a supplementary payment for each hour worked by a low-wage employee based on a target hourly wage rate. The wage subsidy is, in a way, the opposite of a payroll tax. Rather than deduct a certain amount of each worker's earnings, the government would contribute a certain amount in hopes of enabling low-income workers to make a decent living even if they lack the skills to command a substantial market wage. A dramatic version of the wage subsidy proposal was enacted by a number of European countries when the coronavirus pandemic of 2020 locked down their economies. Rather than offer unemployment insurance to workers who lost their jobs during the pandemic, as the U.S. government did, Britain, Denmark, and the Netherlands covered 75 to 90 percent of wages for companies that did not lay off workers. The advantage of the wage subsidy is that it enables employers to retain workers on their payroll during the emergency rather than fire them and force them to rely on unemployment insurance. The U.S. approach, by contrast, cushions workers' lost wages, but does not affirm the dignity of work by ensuring that workers keep their jobs. Other proposals Cass offers are more likely to appeal to conservatives, such as scaling back environmental regulations that cost jobs in manufacturing and mining industries. On the fraught subject of immigration and free trade, Cass urges that we view these from the standpoint of workers, not consumers. If our goal is the lowest possible consumer prices, he observes, then free trade, outsourcing, and relatively open immigration policies are desirable. But if our main concern is creating a labor market that enables low- and middle-skilled American workers to earn a decent living, raise families, and build communities, then some restrictions on trade, outsourcing, and immigration are justified. Whatever the merit of Cass's particular proposals, what is interesting about his project is that it works out the implications of shifting our focus from maximizing GDP to creating a labor market conducive to the dignity of work and social cohesion. In doing so, he offers a scathing critique of globalization proponents who have insisted since the 1990s that the key political divide is no longer between left and right, but between open and closed. Cass rightly points out that this way of framing the globalization debate casts the highly skilled college-educated winners of the modern economy as open-minded and their critics as close-minded. <laughs>
as if questioning the free flow of goods, capital, and people across national borders were a kind of bigotry. It is hard to imagine a more condescending way of defending neoliberal globalization to those it leaves behind. The proponents of the open agenda insist that the solution for those who do not prosper is better education. The vision is supposed to be an inspiring one in which people are lifted upward to greater opportunity, Cass writes. Its real implications are less exalted. If the economy no longer works for the average worker, it is he who needs to transform into something it likes better. He concludes that the open agenda is not sustainable in a democracy where the majority finds itself left behind. Its arguments are losing force. Citing the danger of irresponsible populism, Cass states that the question is not whether the open agenda will lose, but rather to what? Finance, speculation, and the common good. A second approach to renewing the dignity of work, more likely to resonate with political progressives, would highlight an aspect of the globalization agenda that is often overlooked by mainstream politicians, the rising role of finance. The financial industry came dramatically to public attention with the financial crisis of 2008. The debate it provoked was mainly about the terms of the taxpayer bailout and how to reform Wall Street to reduce the risk of future crises. Far less public attention has been given to the way finance remade the economy in recent decades and subtly transformed the meaning of merit and success. This transformation bears deeply on the dignity of work. Trade and immigration have figured more conspicuously than finance in the populist backlash against globalization. Their impact on working-class jobs and status is palpable and visceral. But the financialization of the economy may be more corrosive of the dignity of work and more demoralizing. This is because it offers perhaps the clearest example in a modern economy of the gap between what the market rewards and what actually contributes to the common good. The financial industry today looms large in advanced economies, having grown dramatically during the past several decades. In the United States, its share of GDP has nearly tripled since the 1950s, and by 2008, it claimed more than 30% of corporate profits. Its employees make 70% more than comparably qualified workers in other industries. This would not be a problem if all this financial activity were productive, if it increased the economy's ability to produce valuable goods and services. But this is not the case. Even at its best, finance is not productive in itself. Its role is to facilitate economic activity by allocating capital to socially useful purposes. New businesses, factories, roads, airports, schools, hospitals, homes, 
But as finance has exploded as a share of the U.S. economy in recent decades, less and less of it has involved investing in the real economy. More and more has involved complex financial engineering that yields big profits for those engaged in it, but does nothing to make the economy more productive. As Adair Turner, chair of Britain's Financial Services Authority, explained, there is no clear evidence that the growth in the scale and complexity of the financial system in the rich developed world over the last 20 to 30 years has driven increased growth or stability and it is possible for financial activity to extract rents, unjustified windfalls, from the real economy rather than to deliver economic value. This measured judgment is a devastating verdict on the conventional wisdom that led the Clinton administration and its UK counterparts to deregulate the financial industry in the 1990s. What it means in simple terms is that the complex derivatives and other financial instruments devised by Wall Street in recent decades actually hurt the economy more than they helped it. Consider a concrete example. In his book, Flash Boys, Michael Lewis tells the story of a company that laid a fiber optic cable linking Chicago futures traders with New York stock markets. The cable increased the speed of trades on pork belly futures and other speculative bets by a few milliseconds. This minuscule edge was worth hundreds of millions of dollars to high-speed traders. But it is hard to claim that speeding up such transactions from the blink of an eye to something even faster contributes anything of value to the economy. High-speed trading is not the only financial innovation of dubious economic value. Credit default swaps that enable speculators to bet on future prices without investing in any productive activity are hard to distinguish from casino gambling. One party wins and the other loses, money changes hands, but no investment occurs along the way. When companies use profits to buy back shares, instead of investing in research and development or in new equipment, shareholders gain, but the productive capacity of the company does not. In 1984, as financialization was starting to take off, James Tobin, the distinguished Yale economist, offered a prescient warning of the casino aspect of our financial markets. He worried that we are throwing more and more of our resources, including the cream of our youth, into financial activities remote from the production of goods and services into activities that generate high private rewards disproportionate to their social productivity. It is hard to know exactly what portion of financial activity improves the productive capacity of the real economy and what portion generates unproductive windfalls 
for the financial industry itself. But Adair Turner, a credible authority, has estimated that in advanced economies, such as the US and UK, only 15% of financial flows go into new productive enterprises rather than into speculation on existing assets or fancy derivatives. Even if this underestimates by half the productive aspect of finance, it is a sobering figure. Its implications are not only economic, but also moral and political. Economically, it suggests that much financial activity hinders rather than promotes economic growth. Morally and politically, it reveals a vast discrepancy between the rewards the market bestows on finance and the value of its contribution to the common good. This discrepancy, along with the disproportionate prestige accorded those engaged in speculative pursuits, mocks the dignity of those who earn a living producing useful goods and services in the real economy. Those who worry about the adverse economic effects of modern finance have proposed various ways to reform it. My concern, however, is with its moral and political implications. A political agenda that recognizes the dignity of work would use the tax system to reconfigure the economy of esteem by discouraging speculation and honoring productive labor. Generally speaking, this would mean shifting the tax burden from work to consumption and speculation. A radical way of doing so would be to lower or even eliminate payroll taxes and to raise revenue instead by taxing consumption, wealth, and financial transactions. A modest step in this direction would be to reduce the payroll tax, which makes work expensive for employers and employees alike, and make up the lost revenue with the financial transactions tax on high-frequency trading, which contributes little to the real economy. These and other measures to shift the burden of taxation from labor to consumption and speculation could be done in ways that would make the tax system more efficient and less regressive than it is today. But these considerations, however important, are not the only ones that matter. We should also consider the expressive significance of taxation. By this I mean the attitudes towards success and failure, honor and recognition embedded in the way we fund our public life. Taxation is not only a way of raising revenue, it is also a way of expressing a society's judgment about what counts as a valuable contribution to the common good. Makers and Takers On one level, the moral aspect of tax policy is familiar. We commonly argue about the fairness of taxation. 
whether this or that tax will fall more heavily on the rich or on the poor. But the expressive dimension of taxation goes beyond debates about fairness to the moral judgments societies make about which activities are worthy of honor and recognition and which ones should be discouraged. Sometimes these judgments are explicit. Taxes on tobacco, alcohol, and casinos are called sin taxes because they seek to discourage activities deemed harmful or undesirable, smoking, drinking, gambling. Such taxes express society's disapproval of these activities by raising the cost of engaging in them. Proposals to tax sugary sodas to combat obesity or carbon emissions to address climate change likewise seek to change norms and shape behavior. Not all taxes have this aim. We do not tax income to express disapproval of paid employment or to discourage people from engaging in it. Nor is the general sales tax intended as a deterrent to buying things. These are simply ways of raising revenue. Often, however, moral judgments are implicit in seemingly value-neutral policies. This is especially true when tax touches work and the various ways people make money. For example, why should income from capital gains be taxed at a lower rate than income from labor? Warren Buffett raised this question when he pointed out that he, a billionaire investor, paid a lower rate of tax than his secretary. Some argue that taxing investment less heavily than work encourages investment and so promotes economic growth. On one level, this argument is purely practical or utilitarian. It seeks to increase GDP, not to honor wealthy investors who reap capital gains. But politically, this seemingly practical claim draws some of its persuasive force from a moral assumption, an argument about merit that lurks just beneath the surface. This is the assumption that investors are job creators who should be rewarded with lower taxes. A stark version of this argument was advanced by Republican Congressman Paul Ryan, former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives and a devotee of the libertarian writer Ayn Rand. Ryan, a critic of the welfare state, distinguished between makers, those who contribute the most to the economy, and takers, those who receive more in government benefits than they pay in taxes. He worried that as the welfare state grew, the so-called takers were coming to outnumber the makers. Some objected to Ryan's highly moralized way of speaking about economic contribution. Others accepted his distinction between makers and takers, but argued that Ryan had misidentified them. Rana Faruhar, 
a business columnist at the Financial Times and CNN, offers a powerful instance of the second view in an insightful book called Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, citing Adair Turner, Warren Buffett, and other critics of unproductive financialization. Faruhar argues that the primary takers in today's economy are those in the financial industry who engage in speculative activity that reaps enormous windfalls without contributing to the real economy. All this finance has not made us more prosperous, she writes. Instead, it has deepened inequality and ushered in more financial crises which destroy massive amounts of economic value each time they happen. Far from being a help to our economy, finance has become a hindrance. More finance isn't increasing our economic growth, it is slowing it. Faruhar concludes that the supposed makers are the ones doing most of the taking in society, paying the least taxes, as a percentage of income, grabbing a disproportionate share of the economic pie, and advancing business models that often run counter to economic growth. The true makers, she argues, are those who labor in the real economy to provide useful goods and services, and those who invest in this productive activity. The debate over who is a maker in today's economy, and who a taker, is ultimately an argument about contributive justice, about what economic roles are worthy of honor and recognition. Thinking this through requires public debate about what counts as a valuable contribution to the common good. My proposal to replace some or all of the payroll tax with the financial transactions tax, a sin tax in effect on casino-like speculation that does not help the real economy, is intended as one way of framing such a debate. No doubt there are others. My broader point is that renewing the dignity of work requires that we contend with the moral questions underlying our economic arrangements questions that the technocratic politics of recent decades have obscured. One such question is what kinds of work are worthy of recognition and esteem? Another is what we owe one another as citizens. These questions are connected, for we cannot determine what counts as a contribution worth affirming without reasoning together about the purposes and ends of the common life we share. And we cannot deliberate about common purposes and ends without a sense of belonging, without seeing ourselves as members of a community to which we are indebted. Only insofar as we depend on others and recognize our dependence, do we have reason to appreciate their contributions to our collective well-being? This requires a sense of community sufficiently robust to enable citizens to say, 
and to believe that we are all in this together, not as a ritual incantation in times of crisis, but as a plausible description of our everyday lives. Over the past four decades, market-driven globalization and the meritocratic conception of success taken together have unraveled these moral ties. Global supply chains, capital flows, and the cosmopolitan identities they fostered made us less reliant on our fellow citizens, less grateful for the work they do, and less open to the claims of solidarity. Meritocratic sorting taught us that our success is our own doing, and so eroded our sense of indebtedness. We are now in the midst of the angry whirlwind this unraveling has produced. To renew the dignity of work, we must repair the social bonds the age of merit has undone. Conclusion Merit and the Common Good Henry Aaron, one of baseball's greatest players, grew up in the segregated South. His biographer, Howard Bryant, describes how as a young boy Henry would watch as his father was forced to surrender his place in line at the general store to any whites who entered. When Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color line, Henry, then 13 years old, was inspired to believe that he too could one day play in the major leagues. Lacking a bat and ball, he practiced with what he had, using a stick to hit bottle caps pitched to him by his brother. He would go on to break Babe Ruth's career record for home runs. In a poignant observation, Bryant writes, Hitting, it could be argued, represented the first meritocracy in Henry's life. It is hard to read this line without loving meritocracy, without seeing it as the ultimate answer to injustice, a vindication of talent over prejudice, racism, and unequal opportunity. And from this thought, it is a small step to the conclusion that a just society is a meritocratic one in which everyone has an equal chance to rise as far as their talent and hard work will take them. But this is a mistake. The moral of Henry Aaron's story is not that we should love meritocracy, but that we should despise a system of racial injustice that can only be escaped by hitting home runs. Equality of opportunity is a morally necessary corrective to injustice. But it is a remedial principle, not an adequate ideal for a good society. Beyond equality of opportunity. It is not easy to keep hold of this distinction. Inspired by the heroic rise of a few, we ask how others might also be enabled to escape the conditions that weigh them down. Rather than repair the conditions that people want to flee, 
we construct a politics that makes mobility the answer to inequality. Breaking down barriers is a good thing. No one should be held back by poverty or prejudice. But a good society cannot be premised only on the promise of escape. Focusing only or mainly on rising does little to cultivate the social bonds and civic attachments that democracy requires. Even a society more successful than ours at providing upward mobility would need to find ways to enable those who do not rise to flourish in place, to see themselves as members of a common project. Our failure to do so makes life hard for those who lack meritocratic credentials and makes them doubt that they belong. It is often assumed that the only alternative to equality of opportunity is a sterile, oppressive equality of results. But there is another alternative, a broad equality of condition that enables those who do not achieve great wealth or prestigious positions to live lives of decency and dignity, developing and exercising their abilities in work that wins social esteem, sharing in a widely diffused culture of learning, and deliberating with their fellow citizens about public affairs. Two of the best accounts of equality of condition appeared in the midst of the Depression. In a book entitled Equality, 1931, R. H. Tawney, a British economic historian and social critic, argued that equality of opportunity is at best a partial ideal. Opportunities to rise, he wrote, are not a substitute for a large measure of practical equality, nor do they make immaterial the existence of sharp disparities of income and social condition. Social well-being, he went on, depends on cohesion and solidarity. It implies the existence not merely of opportunities to ascend, but of a high level of general culture and a strong sense of common interests. Individual happiness does not only require that men should be free to rise to new positions of comfort and distinction. It also requires that they should be able to lead a life of dignity and culture, whether they rise or not. In the same year, across the Atlantic, a writer named James Truslow Adams wrote a pean to his country entitled The Epic of America. Few recall the book, but everyone knows the phrase he coined in its closing pages, the American dream. Looking back from our time, it would be easy to equate his account of the American dream with our rhetoric of rising. America's distinctive and unique gift to mankind, Adams wrote, was the dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for every man, with opportunity for each according to his ability 
or achievement. It is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely, but a dream of a social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are, regardless of the fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. But a closer reading reveals that the dream Adams described was not only about moving up. It was about achieving a broad democratic equality of condition. As a concrete example, he pointed to the U.S. Library of Congress, a symbol, he said, of what democracy can accomplish on its own behalf, a place of public learning that drew Americans from all walks of life. Here's how he described it. As one looks down on the general reading room, which alone contains 10,000 volumes, which may be read without even the asking, one sees the seats filled with silent readers, old and young, rich and poor, black and white, the executive and the laborer, the general and the private, the noted scholar and the schoolboy, all reading at their own library, provided by their own democracy. Adams considered this scene to be the perfect working out in a concrete example of the American dream, the means provided by the accumulated resources of the people themselves and a public intelligent enough to use them. If this example could be carried out in all departments of our national life, Adams wrote, the American dream would become an abiding reality. Democracy and Humility We do not have much equality of condition today. Public spaces that gather people together across class, race, ethnicity, and faith are few and far between. Four decades of market-driven globalization has brought inequalities of income and wealth so pronounced that they lead us into separate ways of life. Those who are affluent and those of modest means rarely encounter one another in the course of the day. We live and work and shop and play in different places. Our children go to different schools. And when the meritocratic sorting machine has done its work, those on top find it hard to resist the thought that they deserve their success and that those on the bottom deserve their place as well. This feeds a politics so poisonous and a partisanship so intense that many now regard marriage across party lines as more troubling than marrying outside the faith. It is little wonder we have lost the ability to reason together about large public questions or even to listen to one another. Merit began its career as the empowering idea that we can, through work and faith, bend God's grace in our favor. 
the secular version of this idea made for an exhilarating promise of individual freedom. Our fate is in our hands. We can make it if we try. But this vision of freedom points us away from the obligations of a shared democratic project. Recall the two conceptions of the common good we've considered, the consumerist and the civic. If the common good consists simply in maximizing the welfare of consumers, then achieving an equality of condition does not matter in the end. If democracy is simply economics by other means, a matter of adding up our individual interests and preferences, then its fate does not depend on the moral bonds of citizens. A consumerist conception of democracy can do its limited work whether we share a vibrant common life or inhabit privatized enclaves in the company of our own kind. But if the common good can be arrived at only by deliberating with our fellow citizens about the purposes and ends worthy of our political community, then democracy cannot be indifferent to the character of the common life. It does not require perfect equality, but it does require that citizens from different walks of life encounter one another in common spaces and public places. For this is how we learn to negotiate and to abide our differences and this is how we come to care for the common good. The meritocratic conviction that people deserve whatever riches the market bestows on their talents makes solidarity an almost impossible project. For why do the successful owe anything to the less advantaged members of society? The answer to this question depends on recognizing that for all our striving, we are not self-made and self-sufficient. Finding ourselves in a society that prizes our talents is our good fortune, not our due. A lively sense of the contingency of our lot can inspire a certain humility. There, but for the grace of God, or the accident of birth, or the mystery of fate, go I. Such humility is the beginning of the way back from the harsh ethic of success that drives us apart. It points beyond the tyranny of merit toward a less rancorous, more generous public life.